VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, December the 13th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer of the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So as you heard described by Ben Murphy in the VOCM newscast, a bit of a mixed bag of weather across the province today might make for some tricky driving conditions on the highway, so you... No, the deal. Massive congratulations to Zach Dean, his family, his friends, his teammates. Zach has been named to the 23-man roster to represent Team Canada at the World Junior Hockey Championships, coming up, of course, beginning on Boxing Day, Halifax and Moncton. And we've all heard the stories of Hockey Canada Wall throughout the year, and some of the stories are absolutely scandalous, and they've got a clean house and clean up their act. But, of course, Zach has nothing to do with that. So congratulations to him. Having a good year with the Gatineau Olympique in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. 35 points in 27 games. First-round pick of the Vegas Knights, 30th overall, signed with the team. So he's going to be putting the Maple Leaf on the front of his jersey this coming holiday season. Congratulations, Zach. That's terrific. Ryan Green was also invited to camp, but did not make the final cut, unfortunately. And a former Team Canada member, Dawson Mercer. His Devils are really looking pretty good. Now, cooled off a little tiny bit, but they're 21-5-1, and and I think. Uh, Mercer at the top of the score sheet last night, albeit in a 4-3 loss. A goal and an assist, so he's having a pretty solid year. And today is semifinal number one at the World Cup, the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. Lots of controversy swirling around. FIFA always has been. And certainly the selection of Qatar as the host country and all the issues surrounding it. The soccer's been fantastic. And I've been taking a task for even supporting or watching it because of some of the controversies. Fair ball. But today, Argentina takes on Croatia. You can only hope that Peter Drury is doing the commentary. I mean, he's the poet laureate of sports. Certainly of soccer. It's an absolute thrill just to listen to how he describes the action and the moments of silence that he allows for the crowd and or the players to take over. Peter Drury, man, oh man. Something else. I'm talking about around the world. Today in 1577, Sir Francis Drake set out from England with five ships to circumnavigate the globe. Took almost three years. It was the first English circumnavigation, I believe the second overall, maybe behind Magellan. I should have looked that up before I started talking about it. And of course, as the vice admiral, he was second in command of the English fleet when they were victorious against the Spanish Armada in 1588. 1577, Drake heads off to circumnavigate the world. Okay, so we've been hearing these stories, and it's always worthwhile to put the reminders out there that you have to be just so very wary. When you open your phone, your laptop, you answer the landline, the scammers are everywhere. And this story pertains to gift cards. Many people turn to gift cards, not because they're too lazy to select a gift, but people do appreciate, I think, getting a gift card to buy what they actually want with the gift card that was given to them over the holiday season or for their birthday or whatever the case may be. I never really gave it much thought, but the fact that they're so visible out on the aisles or right by the checkouts in so many of the, whether it be grocery stores or pharmacies or what have you, but apparently there's an associated risk with it. Because the barcode is so visible, apparently the scammers can simply take a picture of it and download it and hope that the barcode eventually will see that there's been cash invested into that gift card. 
And then there's the possibility, and there's apparently some training at the retail level for the staffers to be aware of this potential problem. So what also happens, I'm told, or I read, is that the scammers, once again, would put a fake sticker representing a barcode for a different outlet over the real barcode. For instance, if you are trying to buy a Walmart gift card or a shopper's gift card, they may indeed have taken it upon themselves because they're so accessible inside the store to put a fake barcode over that might see their ability to spend your money at, for instance, at the liquor store or another retail outlet, a Canadian Tire, whatever the case may be. So... While we are all trying to be very careful with our social insurance number and our banking information and access to our computers, a gift card now apparently is in the crosshairs of the folks willing to separate you from your hard-earned money. So just be very cautious when you deal with it. And maybe it's a good idea for the retailers not simply to uh, put some training in place for the folks operating the cash, but maybe make them less accessible so that people aren't falling prey to what is a relentless bunch of nuisances out there that are trying to rip you off. So... Yet another scam alert, this one on the gift cards. I mean, there's just nowhere to hide, is there? All right, yesterday began the opportunity for low-income renters to apply for the one-time $500 benefit in the Canada Housing Benefit. Of course, will be helpful, but when you look at some of the folks who are uh, able to apply, it's such a low threshold. So here's what we know. So the portal is open until the 31st of March of next year. You had to be born on or before December 1st of 2007, so 15 years of age or older. Principal residence was in this country. You had to have filed your taxes for 2021. And here's the adjusted net family income that you have to consider. For families, $35,000 or less. $20,000 or less for individuals. So you can go ahead and make that application, but of course, the net family income also has to include the fact that rent costs at least or equal to 30% of said 2021 adjusted family income, but 500 bucks, one-time tax-free. And now we all know about the rental crunch and the soaring costs of everything, yes, including rent. I'll throw it out one more time. One of the issues that can be addressed at Memorial University or other post-secondary institutions is to reinstitute the home share program. I want to keep banging that drum, I think. So we hear the stories where uh, arriving students, whether it be from Africa, Europe, or somewhere outside of St. John's, and need a place to live, trying to find a rental property. So if you can match up a visiting student with a senior, a cut rate of rent in exchange for some household duties, some domestic chores, whether it be the dishes or the shovel in the driveway or whatever, it is just a win across the board. We've broached it with both uh, Vice President Lisa Brown and President Vianne Timmons at Memorial University. We'll see if they can put it on their agenda, but when we're looking for solutions to problems and they're out there to be taken advantage of like the home share program maybe just maybe we'll see that come to pass i think that's a big win for all involved the schools the seniors and of course the students all right talking about money let's go to newfoundland labrador hydro so yesterday we were given an update on some of their profits for the first uh, pardon me for the third quarter uh, profits were $180 million. That's up $147 million compared with the same quarter of 2021. In the first nine months of this calendar year, the profits came in at $543 million, an increase of $505 million over the same period once again in 2021. Now, mostly non-cash transactions. And, you know, some additional money's put into the deferral account. So that's good news. Uh, but... With Hydro, and if you read some of the folks who continually cover the Muskrat Falls project, the plagued Muskrat Falls project, in, for instance, Dead Sullivan, Uncle Narley's blog, 
you know, I think there's big questions to be asked about the future of the Labrador Island Link. Will it ever work? Will it absolutely ever work? So the project, the last update we had, $13.3 billion. Many people, regardless of the findings by Justice uh, LeBlanc, is whether there's been any referrals to law enforcement. I mean, I hear that all the time. There's a few people who that is their bugaboo, and they send me emails, I'm going to say 12 times a week, about exactly that. And we've actually put that question to Minister of Justice John Hogan as to whether or not there are active files, active investigations, about any of the concerns people have regarding Muskrat Falls, whether it be... Uh, the businesses that got the jobs, the embedded contractors, the who knew what wins. There's some big questions that are still unanswered at this moment in time. But whether it be the synchronous condensers or the software issues on the Labrador Island Link, I think it's absolutely fair, given the fact that the testing failed again, as to whether or not this is ever going to work. Ever. And what does that mean? So if we're looking at additional dollars, because we've already heard that Hydro plans to spend, I think it's $522 million to add an eighth generating unit at Bay to Spare. And of course, that means Holyrood remains in place. One of the key issues that was used to justify Muskrat Falls was not only to get around Quebec, but to see the decommissioning of Holyrood. And that's not happening anytime soon. Even if they so-called fully commission the project and start the flow of power, and even if they can solve some or all of the issues on the Labrador Island link and the 1,100-kilometer link that it is, and at Soldier's Pond, is it ever, ever, ever going to be reliable enough to see Holyrood go away? So with, in addition to the $522 million to be spent to pay to spare, you can make that easily $1 billion over the same time frame because Holyrood is still in action. And I'll be a monkey's uncle if they can ever figure out the reliability to the point where that gets decommissioned. And even if it does, what does backup power look like? We've heard from the consultants that are presented at the Public Utilities Board, Liberty most notably, forecasting that any downtime, whether it be intense storms and the rugged access to the power lines through the long-range mountains, talking about extremely lengthy brownouts or blackouts as a result. So, begs the question, will we ever, ever see Holy Road go away. And if not, what can be done to reduce the pollution spewed from its stacks on a daily basis with the investment in additional scrubbers or more modernized scrubbers or what have you? I'm not 100% what a scrubber is, 100% uh, sure what a scrubber is, but one thing to talk about profits at Hydro, quite another to talk about the multi-billion dollar boondoggle that continues to be the issues surrounding Muscraft Falls. Anyway, you want to take it on, let's go. And then, you know, and I saw another update, some investigative reporting. Uh, I believe the man's name is Troy Turnbull over at CBC. And this is, you know, building on the work done by other investigative reporters. And this regarding the future of the Stephenville Airport. Okay. So 15 months after an announcement by businessman Carl Diamond about his plans for the Stephenville Airport, the injection of hundreds of millions of dollars of private money, the creation of thousands of jobs, the manufacturing of these massive cargo drones and other investments in and around the community, it would have been, well, it would be a massive economic boon for the region. Now, people are very, very skeptical of this particular project and the likelihood of whatever getting off the ground. Skepticism has absolutely outpaced optimism at this moment in time. But these are some really curious findings uh, uncovered by the work that the SEAB did on this front. Okay. So apparently, there was a director named for Mr. Diamond's companies, unbeknownst to the person. Dominic Horwath, I believe is his name. 
So he hasn't done any business or had any interaction with Mr. Diamond for over a year, yet unbeknownst to him, he was director. He was listed as the sole director of the company and actually backdated a couple of years. Since then, his name has been taken away, and Mr. Diamond is now the sole director of the companies as well. So the two Diamond companies, one being the aerospace division that would have been the prime business investing in Stephenville. Also, they went to the business addresses that were listed by the Diamond companies to find that there were no companies belonging to Mr. Diamond operating in said addresses. One was a virtual company where he did indeed take advantage of some meeting room opportunities whatnot in a very prestigious building in Ottawa, but no longer there, no longer using the space. So those red flags are very real. Now, he was insistent that there would be no public monies required or involved in his plans for the Stephenville Airport. So I understand why people are really quite skeptical about this, and there's all kinds of references to scam or what have you. I don't know what eventually is going to happen, but 15 months later, they say they've found some legal wranglings regarding a past bankruptcy dating back to 2005. But if there's no public money involved, and yes, it will play on people's emotional strings in the area, whether it be members of councils or residents of Stephenville that were really quite hopeful that this industry would come to town, if there's no public money, I suppose there's no real harm in letting it play out, but the red flags are becoming more frequent, and some of them are really quite bizarre. So we'll see if we can arrange some more time with Mr. Diamond to see if we can't get some sort of realistic update as to where we are and what the future might hold. But those revelations are, are strange. Anyway, that's a bad one. And World Energy GH2, you know, the future of that particular plan and the protection of Crown Lands and the full understanding of what's in it for us and the concerns being voiced by folks in the region, whether people want to label it as NIMBY or not, you know, where people live, where these investments are proposed to take place, it's important to hear from them as well. But anything on that issue, just imagine if these, th just two of those issues, on top of the big mining opportunities in the province and the potential for the cash windfall coming, for instance, from Beta Nord. There's still lots of reasons to be optimistic, but how real are any of these things? And, you know, what kind of protections are going to be put in place so that we don't get led down the garden path? by whoever comes to town with whatever proposal, whether it be for green hydrogen, airport purchases, cargo drone manufacturers, or anything up and down the line. But, yeah. All right. Quick check. The municipal budgets are floating fast and furious. And in the capital city of St. John's, there will be no increase in your property tax, but there will be a $45 hike in your water fees. The budget, the spending is up 4.3%, uh, over $333 million. And, of course... The inflationary pressures we feel, and cost of fuels and what have you, is absolutely impacting the city of St. John's. I'm, to be honest with you, I'm a little bit surprised we're not seeing a hike in property tax. You know, the $45 is one thing. But here's the one that I think a lot of people will latch on to, whether it be the contractual obligations that they arrive with their unionized employees, and, of course, St. John's Sports and Entertainment. There used to be a lot of tension and focus and conversation about the future of St. John's Sports and Entertainment. Of course, they've struggled throughout the pandemic. Now that they have the doors open, that brings on the full staffing complement as well. The subsidy or the operating grant for St. John's Sports and Entertainment up over $961 million to $6.1 million, that according to Councillor Ron Ellsworth. So I've never really quite understood why they're so protective of that particular entity. If there was locals willing to take it on, 
and vowing to not need a subsidy or take any public monies to operate St. John's Sports and Entertainment and Mary Brown Center, notably Mr. McDonald, Dean McDonald, and the operating budget or grant up over $6.1 million there. No change in the mill rate out of Gander. And this one is really going to be a story. There was a highly contentious and emotional strike, job action, out in the city of Mount Pearl. The leader of uh, the local chapter of the Canadian Union of Public Employees, CUPE, local 2099, a fellow named uh, Ken Turner. He's a city engineer. He's now been fired. Mayor Dave Baker says it's not a labor relations matter, but the union, they beg to differ. Here's a quote come from Sherry Hillier, of course, who was the president of QP Newfoundland and Labrador, terminating a dedicated employee of 11 years who was also a 22-year military veteran who retired with honor and distinction just two weeks before Christmas is just a disgrace, and the city management should be ashamed of themselves. It, it certainly smells from the outside like a bit of retaliation because Mr. Turner was quite vocal, but hey, it's a job action. That's exactly, you know, the kind of emotions we're going to see. Now, some of the locals maybe were quite frustrated with the cancellation of youth sports and what have you over the summer. But on strike for quite a long time, I think it was about 12 weeks that they were out, representing some 200 city workers. And Mr. Turner is the only worker to have been terminated. And if you want to chime in on that, we could absolutely discuss it. And it looks like Bruce Chalk is out at Elections NL. His contract expired on Sunday. There's already been uh, mention announced by the government yesterday that Travis Woolley, who's been named the acting chief electoral officer and chief, of course, is the acting commissioner for legislative standards, both positions once occupied by Mr. Chalk. He was there for six years, and, of course, all the reports, whether it be by the citizen's representative, Bradley Moss, and then a review of that report by former Chief Justice Derek Green, and on and on it goes. Tumultuous is one way to put it, and, of course, he oversaw the most lengthy and expensive election in the province's history. And it looks like Mr. Chalk is out at Elections NL. You want to take it on? You can do it. A- and last one. I usually try to f- polish off with something a little bit lighter and a bit more cheer or cheery. But we've got to keep putting this one out there, too, because it's heartbreaking and in many respects it's shameful. You've heard the stories as much as I have about couples who have been together for decades requiring different levels of need or care between a personal care home or a long-term care facility or an acute care bed. This story here is about Jim and Theresa Wolfrey. They've been together for 67 years, but have spent the last year apart. Now, with the help of the family, whether it be their children or grandchildren, Jim gets an opportunity to visit his beloved wife, Theresa, almost every day, but... The stories are becoming more and more common. I know it is not a fundamental, simple solution, but we have to find one. If they've managed to figure it out in other provinces via legislation that this cannot happen, a la Nova Scotia, and I know the minister and the government, they will also see these stories and think we've got to do better, and we must, and we've got to do it right away. You know full well that their mental, emotional, and physical conditions will deteriorate. The impact it would have on their family, their friends, their grandchildren, their own children must be excruciating. So 67 years together, because of different levels of need in medical care, separated. One living in paradise, one living in St. John's, and we've heard these stories far too frequently in the recent past, so we've got to figure that out. 
We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openlineatvocm.com. And, of course, my favorite is when you pick up the phone to give us a call. doesn't matter if I brought it up or if you've ever heard it discussed on the program. If you want to do exactly that today, just give us a call, get in the queue, and away we go. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. And welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number four. Good morning, Bonnie. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about yourself? Good, good. Uh, Patty, I'm trying to find uh, a place that I could drop off some donations, Christmas decorations and and whatnot. I have like two totals of things here. And uh, I've been trying to, you know, reach out, you know, through the Internet, Facebook, whatever, but I can't seem to get in touch with anyone, so... I'm not sure what to do with it. I would like to give it to a, a new Ukrainian family if I could. Or Well, certainly the best place to uh, make that link would be through the Association for, uh, for New Canadians. They might be okay. able to put you on to a newcomer family that would appreciate some decorations because I'm sure they didn't bring them along from Ukraine. So what, what no, kind sure. of decorations do you have? Just the, the standard oh holiday God, bulbs? and. Oh, there's all kinds of stuff. There's, you know, the greenery and the and the lights. And I don't have a tree, certainly, but I have all kinds of, you know, wreaths and things that they could just put around their house or whatever. I got some beautiful things, actually, because <laughs> I moved from a house to an apartment in, uh, in last week. So oh, okay. I downsized big time. Yeah, I, you know, I think our family's probably in the same place. When we went to decorate our home and tree in particular, half of what we brought up from the basement went back down because you accumulate stuff over the years. It becomes unbelievable how much people have taken around. Absolutely, for sure. I have like nine totals of stuff actually, but I've, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten rid of a lot of stuff. But now I've decided to, to you know, get rid of some more. So not to pry. I, I want to get it out of my house too, so it's taken up a lot of space. So. I need to get rid of it. Okay. I have uh, pictures, Christmas pictures and stuff like that too. You know, all kinds of little things to put around your house kind of thing. Sounds so, lovely. Someone's I, going I to enjoy it. I did call this number. It's a new Canadian Ukraine support team, 3250881, but I just keep getting a recording, so... Well, I think if you call the association proper, you're probably going to have a little bit more success. I can give you their number. Okay, perfect. So, 722... Seven two two nine six eight zero nine six eight zero. Okay, uh, perfect. Not to pry, Bonnie, but what prompted the downsizing? Uh, my age. <laughs> okay, yeah, because for well, some, my son built a new house and he offered us uh, an in last week, so we said, you know what, let's do it. I got arthritis. My husband has health issues since he's early fifties, so. That's why we decided to down downsize, right? And an in last week, that's a perfect arrangement. Oh, for sure, absolutely. It's perfect. <laughs> okay, Bonnie, so if you have no luck with the Association for New Canadians or if anyone out there is in need of some Christmas decorations and you'd like to take advantage of some of Bonnie's offerings, whether it be wreaths or bulbs or tinsel or garland or whatever is in those two totes, let us know. But you let me know, Bonnie, if you make uh, how you make out with the Association. Yes, okay. So will I give my number out on the air? or We can just leave it with or? David if you prefer. Okay, okay. Yeah, we've got it. Okay. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Bonnie. Have a good day. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Goodbye. Uh, Yeah, quick question being posed via email, and I'll try to get to the bottom of it. It's not the first time we've been asked, and I can't figure it out quite yet. But if you're a tenant in a Newfoundland Labrador housing unit, are you eligible for this? There's nothing on the eligibility list uh, via Canada.ca that says you're not, but... We'll get confirmation because that's going to be a pretty popular question, I would think, and we'll see what we can figure out. 
Uh, okay, another good suggestion for Bonnie, if you're still listening, Bonnie. If you can't find a taker, maybe the SPCA thrift stores will take them. There's one on Topsail Road, another on Elizabeth Avenue, so that might be home for your decorations as well. Okay, before we get to the break, let's go to line number two. Bruno, you're on the air. <coughs> Excuse me. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Uh, sorry about that. I'm having a hard time with my throat today, so we'll see how far we get. Um, I wanted to talk to you about uh, your comment about uh, what can be done at, at uh, Holyrood if, in fact, uh, that has to be in, uh, increased to take up the slack of uh, Muskrat Falls failures. Uh, I've got some ideas about that, but uh, uh, the <laughs> Muskrat Falls, you know, for I, many years I've been talking to you about the shortcomings uh, of the and the under design of the Labrador Island link, and it's apparent now that my worst fears have come to pass. It will always be unreliable, the 1,100 kilometers uh, going through Labrador uh, are also going to be unreliable. And so we have to start thinking about never using Muskrat Falls, that legacy project of um, a recent premier uh, who still swears up and down that it's the best thing that has ever happened to Newfoundland and Labrador, perhaps save from uh, Galway. Uh, but here we are now having to contemplate never use, never being able to use Muskrat Falls because of its unreliability and what we're going to have to do. Um, you know, uh, uh, Gnarly rightly points out today that when you have... Um, when you have politicians that look for legacy projects at public expense, uh, he says, when they manifest this delusion to seed incompetence and ultimately significant financial loss, that seems to me to be the, um, uh, the eulogy for Muskrat Falls. And uh, I fear that the pattern is once again being repeated, but we can talk about that on another day with GH2 World Energy being another delusion that politicians have with no benefit to Newfoundlanders. But let's focus today on the problems with the uh, Labrador Island link and what can be done. Um, <laughs> I, I'm the last one to be advising that uh, you should be burning more fossil fuels, but... Uh, in the short term, it seems that no one's interested in putting up windmills to stop shores to uh, do for the shortcomings uh, of your electrical system. So let's look at uh, what can be done with Holyrood. Holyrood has uh, been going by using the dirtiest fuels imaginable. And you can cut the emissions uh, onto the, the res uh, uh, surrounding community and the larger community by just switching your fuels, switching your fuels to cleaner and cleaner fossil fuels. Don't you think, Patty? Well, uh, options certainly have to be found. The only question I would put to you on that one is we have to ensure whatever we do 
is as reliable as we need it to be because we can't backstop an unreliable play with another one that may be not is not equally unreliable because I know what you're suggesting is nowhere near the the plagued issues regarding whether it be Soldier's Pond or the Labrador Island Link. But do we have, can we indeed fuel the people's needs for power with simply what we have for assets, whether it be hardwoods or the Beta Spare plant and or the uh, minimal powers that we can drag down from Labrador versus uh, via this cursed link? Can wind be the BL and end all backstop? I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, yeah, wind and batteries certainly are. I, I, I have. Uh, and if you do a bit of research, I think you'll come to the same conclusion that batteries are now reliable enough that they've been used massively in, uh, uh, in Australia and in other places. Uh, and uh, if you're talking about backing up wind, it's very rare that the wind stops for uh, any uh, significant amount of time and you're offshore. No, it's not uh, about whether or not it's windy. That's not the issue. Well, what's the issue? Well, I mean, are there any concerns regarding, uh, say, for instance, temperature? And the, the peak demands at the exact same time where the temperatures will be as low as they get, certainly off the shores and out in the North Atlantic, the merciless North Atlantic? These are just questions. I'm not making declarations because I don't know whether or not that is absolutely what can or should be done. I do know that even if we abandon Muskrat Falls, there's also some pretty serious questions as to what that means for me, the ratepayer. There's also, I think, big questions as to what it means for our contractual obligations on the other side of the maritime link with Nova Scotia Power and Amera. Those are things that I don't think we have a real firm understanding of. Yeah, well, I don't uh, dispute that, but those are not going to go away. That's already water under the bridge that you're going to have to come to terms with, isn't it? Yes, but yes, Bruno, it is. Okay, final word to you, sir. Go ahead. To answer your question about the reliability, the uh, windmills that have been used in cold uh, settings uh, and offshore now for quite a while, and they have a reliability. Uh, built up their uh they have a track record built up in the offshore so that certainly can be researched and i don't think it's a problem that uh is you know they're being used in the north sea and in other places that rival uh the climate here without any much of an issue if they're designed uh competently so windmills backed up by batteries uh, with uh, cleaner fuels at Muskrat, at uh, Holyrood, if you want to build an, more capacity there, uh, you can switch to uh, <laughs> that oil or the natural gas that you keep putting back into the ground for no good reason that we've been arguing about for a decade now. Who's been arguing about that? Well, you you told me right off the bat that we could never get the offshore uh, the natural gas from the offshore because they were telling us that it just didn't make any sense. No, I, 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 I never said that. Along, that was a bunch of hogwash. Uh, I, I've never said anything like that, but the fact of the matter is we don't produce. As a province, the province, the uh, government of Newfoundland and Labrador does not produce oil, does not produce gas. We just don't. So what you're suggesting is that we force some operating uh, operations offshore to deliver gas, which is what I've always said no, is we don't no, produce no, anything. No, that's not what I'm saying. 
Well, what are you saying then? How do we get the gas out unless the producers produce it? Well, they're producing the gas and putting it back in the ground, you told me. Well, they are. They re-inject that and water to force the oil out, and or some gets gets flared off. But the question, Bruno, is a very fundamental one, and then then I'm going, is if the producers don't produce the gas, how do we get them to produce the gas? Or are are you suggesting we simply buy natural gas from another source, another operation somewhere in the country or somewhere abroad to fuel, whether it be a twin cycle, whatever these turbines are? If uh, until the time where you can get your own natural gas, and I think it's easier than you're suggesting, you, you're going to have to buy some kind of fossil fuel for Holyrood. And I'm suggesting that you switch all of, the, all of that capacity to natural gas until you can kick the oil companies in the arse enough to give you some of their natural gas or, or oil. Okay. Uh yeah, and we were also talking about replacing, what is it, 500 megawatts of uh, maximum generating capacity at Holyrood. If that goes away, could the answer solely be in 500 megawatts of wind? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know, which I think is a fair answer because I don't know. Over time you can, but no one's suggesting that you abandon Holyrood immediately. But switch your fuels and you'll cut your power by 50%, 75%. Isn't that a great start? Sure it is. I uh, appreciate the time, Bruno. Hope you have a great holiday season. I hope so, too. Good man. Take care. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Hilda Zer, she has a response to Bonnie on the Christmas decorations, and then we'll be speaking with you about a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Hilda. You're on the air. Hi, Hilda, you're on the air. Good morning to you. Hi. Um, I heard the lady calling in about the Christmas decorations. Uh Uh-huh. There's an actual group on Facebook. It's called Newfoundland and Labrador Help Slash Host for Ukrainians. And a lot of people are posting things on there that they're giving away. Okay. And, yeah, and Ukrainian people are on that group, so they'll respond. Excellent idea. I do very little Facebooking, to be honest with you. I try to remember to put people onto neighbors in need, for instance, when there's some of those yeah. co- types of calls come in. So what's the name of the Facebook group again? Sorry. Newfoundland yep. and Labrador. Yep. Help slash host for Ukrainians. Okay. We will put I Bonnie onto it. Yeah. You know, like there's a lot of good things being done through that group. I've actually furnished one apartment for a family. Terrific. I'm in the process now of furnishing another one. Two more, actually. And, uh, yeah, most of everything that's coming is through that group and family and friends, of course. But, uh, yeah, it's, and it's good things that's being donated through that group. Oh, no doubt about it. Uh, people yeah. are willing and wanting to help. I And as I mentioned, I don't do a whole lot of stuff on Facebook, so I don't. it doesn't always pop into my mind right away, as opposed to more yeah. formalized organizations. So it's Newfoundland and Labrador Help slash Host for Ukrainians. We will put Bonnie onto that as well, if, if she doesn't have any luck with the association itself. Yeah, it's kind of hard to get through to the association because they are so busy. I would imagine they are. Yeah. We'll, we'll give Bonnie a call and make that suggestion on your behalf. Okay. Thanks for this. You have a great day. You too, Hilda. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Okay, let's keep going. Line number three, say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks, Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. 
Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning. Yeah, Patty, uh, I, uh, there are so many uh, things we could talk about as it relates to health care. And uh, uh, for sure, um, you know, when I think of all the various uh, issues around our province, Healthcare is definitely at the top, at least in my office, in terms of the calls, messages, and concerns we're getting, whether it be uh, issues around uh, lack of family doctors or people, long waits in uh, emergency, uh, issues trying to get into these collaborative clinics and walk-in clinics, uh, you name it. But today I wanted to talk about uh, long-term care. It's something certainly that we have spoken about in the past, and um, you know, it was only uh, about a year ago, I suppose, uh, that I was presenting petitions in the House of Assembly. I did so for quite some time, actually, on behalf of the group Advocates for Senior Citizens' Rights. Um, and they were looking, obviously, uh, they were promoting what they uh, had called Lillian's Law and basically to set standards in place for people living in long-term care. Uh, unfortunately, uh, <clears throat> despite my best efforts in bringing this up day after day in the House Assembly with these petitions and so on, uh, really never got a whole lot of traction from the uh, Minister of Health at the time. As a matter of fact, he was pretty dismissive and uh, said, you know, everything is fine uh, if he spoke at all. A lot of times he just ignored it. And now, of course, we're seeing, uh, you know, as of late, we're hearing more and more horror stories of things happening in long-term care and concerns that people have. Wasn't Lillian's Law mostly about uh, staff-to-resident ratios and an independent uh, manager in each unit and that, uh, that kind of stuff? Yes, that was the, that was the primary focus of, of, of Lillian's Law. You're right, it was around uh, having appropriate staff, but having it mandated in legislation, certain ratios, and as you say, also to have somebody like on the in the common areas uh, you know, to, to, to always be there to watch people, particularly people with Alzheimer's and dementia, so that they couldn't hurt themselves or, or hurt others. But there was, you know, there was numerous concerns they had around long-term care. But the one I just want to just bring up now, and this is because uh, you brought up in your preamble, and certainly I've heard from uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Wolfrey family. Um, she's a con- the daughter. Uh, it's a constituent of mine, actually. Um, this is absolutely cruel what's happening in terms of uh, separating couples. I mean, this couple, my goodness, been together for 67 years or 86 years old, and now they're being separated. And thank God they do have a family, a very supportive family, that are able to, you know, keep them together as much as possible by driving uh, driving uh, the father back and forth to, to, to see his wife. And uh, imagine the families. In, in that situation that don't have it. And this story can get even worse for other families because another policy which needs to change in addition to the separation of couples is this whole policy around first available bed. And because I've had situations and they're existing today of families, for an example, who let's say they lived in St. John's uh, as an example or Mount Pearl or whatever the case might be, and all of a sudden, the, their loved one needs to go into long-term care. Uh, they have a first available bed policy in Eastern Health. So because it's Eastern Health, Eastern Health could mean placentia. It could mean carbonier and so on. So we have situations, for example, where there's a family with all the family living in St. John's or Mount Pearl. Mom or dad get sick. And because of this 
first available bed policy, mom or dad ends up in placentia. So it's one thing in the case of the uh, of the Wolfrey family, and and this is absolutely wrong. What's going on with them? They have to be going through the stress of having to drive dad back and forth every day. But imagine if you're a family uh, in in this particular case, uh, and your loved one, your spouse of all these years, or your mom or your dad or whatever, is in placentia. How is anybody reasonably going to be able to drive back and forth to placentia? every single day um or or you know to to see a loved one um you know just not realistic at least you know if you're in town at the very least and and you're living in town well perhaps when you get off work in the evening time you can go out and visit mom or dad or whatever but when you have family members that are being put out in placentia or carbonier or wherever the case might be in that eastern health zone which could be anywhere that makes things impossible in terms of being able to see them at all. So um, we have a number of policies that need to be looked at uh, in terms of long-term care. Uh, certainly the separation of loved ones is a big one that needs to change. It was changed in Nova Scotia recently. It could be changed here. And like I say, this first available bed and separating families uh, geographically by that distance is absolutely unconscionable. And that also needs to change. I tried to find out a bit more about what changed via legislation in Nova Scotia, but it's been fairly elusive. You know, the fact of the matter is, if it can be done, we should do it. The minister, I think it's a fair comment coming from him that no sense legislating something that we can't accomplish or actually accommodate, but we have got to figure this out. It's one thing to have the family locally to be able to drive Jim to visit Teresa. That's great. And the point you make about uh, having to drive in placentia, which is completely unmanageable, true. But not everyone even has any family, let alone as close as placentia. So we can't hope for family, their children or grandchildren, to be the group that keeps them from being completely and permanently separated. So this one here, look, the dollars and cents of it all, we can figure it out down the road. But the fact of the matter is quite understandable for so many families. When you see, like even just, we all know the stories. One of the partners passes away very quickly. The physical and mental emotional condition of the the grieving loved one deteriorates to the point where they become quite ill and or themselves pass away. So the same kind of reaction, chemical reaction, is going to happen when we separate them. Imagine together 67 years. That's all you know. That's how you think. That's how you operate. That's where you feel safe. That's where you feel loved. That's where there's familiarity. And now it's gone in one fell swoop. We have got to figure this out. There's a couple of these issues that are on my mind when I go to bed. Some of them are distinctly different, but we have the similar overlaps. we got to figure out crown lands, and we got to figure out the separation of couples entering long-term care, regardless of their medical needs. There's a way to do it because it's been done. Absolutely, Patty. It, it has to be done, and, you know, I, I understand. Uh, you know, I think like us all, or most of us, I'm very cognizant of... Uh, you know the financial situation of the province and our and our and our huge debt and everything else, and we have to try to find, you know, efficiencies and be prudent where we can. But there are certain like there there, there are certain things in government, uh, I, I guess that you would say would be uh, there's wants and needs. Put it that way, no different than your own house, right? There's things that you absolutely need. There's things that you want that you can do without. Uh, I kind of view government the same in, in uh, you know, to a certain degree. There are things that we do in government that are nice to do, that we'd like to do, um, and so on. And there are things that we absolutely have to do. And this has to go on the 
have to-do list. And, uh, and, and while we had to be cognizant of the bottom line, uh, the, there are certain things that you simply cannot put a price on. And this is one of them in my view. So uh, I, I'm not sure, you know, I know it's not, there's no easy fix to this. And I do appreciate, I, I read in the article that Minister Osborne said, well, as part of this long-term care review, that this issue, uh, um, you know, needs to be part of it. And I agree with that. I don't have a problem with it. But in the short term and in the, you know, while we're waiting for that, because God knows when that review will actually be done, how long it will take. And even if the review is done, how long it will take for government to actually implement any recommendations coming out of that review, uh, we could be waiting quite some time. So in the meantime, uh, certainly uh, I'm just asking the government to take a look at this case here with the Wolfries and other families who are in a similar circumstance as they are, and we have to put some caring back into health care. There has to be some humanity, and we have to find a way to uh, fix that for these families so that these couples can enjoy their, you know, their, their, their final years together and, and to be happy. Appreciate the time, Paul. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. Take care. Bye-bye. I was Paul Lane, independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands. Look, that story, you know, nobody listening to that story can find it anything but heartbreaking. Can you just imagine being a member of the Worley family, or the Wolfrey family, pardon me? Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, the topic is up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Just a quick one uh, on behalf of a listener who sent me an email asking me to announce this particular plea. So we know the cost of, in particular, hockey equipment is unbelievable. Sticks, man, oh man, gone are the days where you can 25 bucks for a Sherwood 50 30 PMP 5030. So this is goalie sticks. Lost two Bauer mock goalie sticks. One is red, one is black. Lost in the area of Twin Rinks this morning at 7 a.m. If you have picked up those goalie sticks and want to get it back to the young goaltender, the number to call and speak with Wanda, 727-8580. Okay, so we had the Auditor General, Denise Hanrahan, on the program last week talking about her most recent report regarding corrections, what goes on not only inside the penitentiary, but the policies and the oversight of inmates upon their release, the reintegration, checking in on court order mandates, curfew checks and the like, some glaring gaps in it. And Ms. Hanrahan and her team do pretty important work. So this is also on the correction side. The Canadian, um, the pardon me, the Newfoundland Labrador chapter of the Canadian Mental Health Association is winding down a really important program regarding the justice system. So They've been doing this for some 10 years. It's a hope to keep former inmates with mental illnesses out of the system. So when they were celebrating their 10 years of operations in 2019, they went on to tout some of the successes they've had. The program supported 112 members, 67% of whom had never reoffended or been reincarcerated. So obviously massive successes. Now the Canadian Mental Health Association, they say that you know, with the diversion of funding and whatnot, and it's not necessarily right inside their core mandate, which they want to get back to, whether it be in the advocacy uh, work or what have you. The program winds up on January 12th. They're trying to find a place or an organization to replace the work that they've done. But, you know, when we know so full well, and you hear whether it be from people who work at the courts or lawyers or judges, uh, the approximate percentage of people going through the court system and potentially being incarcerated, some 80% would be dealing with addictions and or mental illness. So when there was a group out there that was obviously having great successes, two-thirds of the people that they counseled never reoffended. 
because recidivism is what we hear so far or so far too often in this province. So you can only hope that there's going to be an organization that can take this on because mental illness and the criminal justice system, we've got to understand what goes on, not only inside the penitentiary, but the opportunity, especially once you've been arrested, convicted, and incarcerated once, to find out supports in the community so you don't do it again. So it's good for that individual. It's absolutely good for public safety, and it's good for the system as a whole. And, you know, every time that a story comes up, whether it be the diamonds out in Catalina and the Crown Lands issue and or the rash of stories we're hearing uh, regarding families being separated upon entering long-term care, it's no surprise, but very quickly my email inbox fills up with similar stories. And exactly that has happened this morning regarding folks being separated, entering care. The one that I read very quickly through the break, and I haven't responded to it quite yet, is that it hasn't happened yet to this family, but they know it's just a matter of time. Their parents are aging. They absolutely have very distinct different needs for medical care. One really does need a lot of medical attention. And because they don't think they get enough home support, and these siblings, the children of this couple, they do not live in the same area. This couple is out, I'll just say, out in rural Newfoundland. And the most of their children live right here in the metro region. They see it coming, they know what's happening, and when their parents are seeing and reading these stories, they are already begun their worries about being separated. This particular couple has been together for 55 years. You know, the Wolfries together 67 years. So not only is it impacting the folks who are living that reality right now, it's the families out there who know that's coming to them. And so before it even happens, the level of concern and worry and grief and frustration has already manifested itself. So that's where, when government says they would like to do better on that front, they're going to try to figure out a way. How many families out there feel exactly that? Whether you're living it and your parents have been separated, or your grandparents, or you think that's coming to your family because you see how mom and dad are, you understand their health concerns, you understand the difference in their health concerns, and now that they're, whether it be downsizing or simply can't live independently any further, don't have the home care required, and at this moment, we haven't figured out, as per the health accord or seniors advocates, whether it be Susan Walsh or Suzanne Brake, talking about the hope to find a way to age in place. Until we figure that out in full, we've got to absolutely understand what legislation can look like to keep these couples from being separated. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Do not go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Back, let's go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. So we got a couple things to try and get through. Um, City of St. John's dropped their uh, budget yesterday. Some of the things I, I really can't square circles, as you like to say. Um, their budget spending is up 4.3%. And that's basically thirteen, thirteen point six million dollars increase. And of that, they said the diesel is four point one six million increase, and gas up one point three. And they went through some other things. Um, but one of the things they indicated in the budget papers that labor is only up three point one million dollars, which, which I can't seem to. This is for next year. I can't really seem to figure that out. I mean, if I even look at the twenty-one, they're going to hire twenty-one point two four new full-time equivalents. And if you just take that 3.1 and divide it by 104 by 21.24, it's 145 thousand dollars per employee. 
I'm thinking that that's what they're talking about in that, but although they don't say it, because if when you look at their budget increases, uh, their wage increases, they just gave their staff, and although it's difficult to really find out exactly how much they pay everybody, I figure it's around $220 million, and 2.5% of that is going to be half of this year and half of next year. That's going to be an extra $5.8 million. So I'm thinking that labor is actually up a combination of that, although I could be wrong on that. But, you know, when when it seems like, it seems like when uh, Councillor Ellsworth was, was pressed on, and, you know, the councillors seemed to keep coming back to the fact that the cost of diesel is up, cost of gas is up, inflation is up. But they don't ever seem to mention the fact that that they're signing wage increases and, and in this case hiring new employees and driving up their long-term costs. And, and in order to finance it, to pay for it, they're relying on either increases in taxes, which in this case didn't happen, fortunately, but they're taking money from the past, um, from reserves, money that was saved in the previous years. And then I, I don't believe anybody believes that next year is going to be better or the year after is going to be better with the way things are going. So, you know, I just, I just want to question him on that. Then. Yeah, what's the reference to saved? Are you referring to the surplus that was posted in at uh, the end of 2021, some $21 million, and some $6 million of that implemented into this budget to help avoid uh, raising property taxes? Correct. I mean, that's exactly right. So they, they've used money. I mean, I don't think the money was saved in 2021, but um, from prior, prior years, um, yeah, $6.1 million they transferred to, in order to avoid raising taxes. However, they did raise recreation fees for people, yep. saying to avoid avoid raising them in the future. So it's, it's just kind of like, it's, for me, I'm I'm, I'm thinking there, there's no tough choices here. I see no reference to uh, we're gonna we're analyzing how we're utilizing our vehicles. For example, we're just accepting the fact that diesel's up, that gas is up. We're not talking about idling. We're not talking about managing whether or not people need to be driving around in big vans and trucks to go stand you know, go supervise a job site, whether or not that could be done with a smaller vehicle. There's really no reference to, you know, as as all of us are sitting around contemplating how how we manage inflation, how we manage, uh, and in most cases, it's reducing spending. You guys have a poll up on VOCM now saying that, you know, the majority of people are spending less money on Christmas gifts this year. I, you know, I just don't see that tone with the city of St. John's, um, you know, basically recognizing they need to also make different choices. And I just want to call on counselors again. I mean, I know it's probably fallen on deaf ears. I do appreciate the fact that they didn't raise taxes, and that's very helpful. But but bear in mind that they've increased – they are increasing their operating costs significantly, $13 million this year. So that money has got to be paid for. That's got to come from somewhere, and it's going to come from the taxpayer. It's the only place it can come from. You made mention of the rec fees. I did say that the water fee is going up some $45, but in uh, just some examples regarding the recreational fees, the after-school program at the Paul Reynolds Community Centre with transportation goes from 350 to 375 Day camp at Paul Reynolds, Camount Terrace, Southlands, Bowering Park going from 125 to 150 To be honest with you, with the input costs, whether it be fuel or other inflationary pressures that we're all experiencing, we know the municipalities are experiencing them as well, I'm a little bit surprised that the increase in spending has been kept at 4.3 million, or 4.3 percent. Pardon me. I know full well some of that is the, contribu- the contribution of some 6.1 million dollars from the 2021 surplus, but I was anticipating this to sound and feel and look worse. So, regardless of inflation and the prices of fuels 
and the new contract signed with the unionized employees, I was really anticipating uh, an increase in my property tax. I'm glad they've been able to stave it off, even though it is going to cost me more for a water fee. But, you know, I guess there's still plenty of questions that we can and we should ask. I believe Councillor Ron Ellsworth is going to join us in a little while. Yeah, I mean, I think I think really it's just, you know, are you guys are you, are you guys aware of what is happening in the world right now? You know, your all your expenses are going up and your a lot of your residents uh income is not keeping up to that. And and if you you know, put at the same time, I mean, when you look at that budget up 4.3%, it's disingenuous because you're basically taking money out of your bank, which you're not really supposed to do to pay operating costs. Like that money should be reserved for other for other things. And so really the budget's probably up 6.5%, which is basically right in line with inflation. However, they have a lot of control and and like we do in our own homes. I mean, I would I would just push him on that. I mean, I you know, I realize, you know, if it's business as usual when you sit around the council table or around the house assembly or around around the parliament, uh then then you don't change anything. You know, you do, you maintain everything, you don't upset the apple cart. You know, you look over at at the people sitting around that room. Two of them used to make $200,000 when they're sitting in the council chambers at St. John's. Two of them by the time these these raises that they just announced go through, eight of them. So pretty well everybody in the room is going to be making over $200,000 a year. And and I don't know at what point you look everybody in the face and say, guys, you know, we're living the life, but what's happening outside the buildings? So I just want to keep pointing it out. Moving over to the um, public-private partnerships is a big conversation. Um, within the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, it seems pretty apparent that we don't actually have a really robust free market when it comes to public contracts in general. And we've, you know, the, the biggest glaring example, obviously, is the phone med conversation, where it's almost on some level, not blank check, but there's definitely some challenges when you only have one bidder. And that one bidder, which is phone med, which is a Newfoundland company, great company doing great work around the world, also just gets edge status. And for those who don't realize it, that was something that's from way back in the past. But these guys are going to get 100% rebate on the provincial corporate income tax, 50% rebate on the federal corporate tax, 100% rebate on municipal property and business taxes for 10 years. For 10 years. So not only are they making you know, millions and millions of dollars every year from the taxpayers, and it's not their fault. They're taking advantage of stuff that exists. They're being good, smart businesses. Uh, uh, that's what I was going to say. Isn't that doing business the right way? Well, it's it's doing business the right way, but if the province has sets up the situation where there's no back doors, where you know you can have a sole source contract, which is what's happened here, without any back door, we're like, oh wait a second, this is too much money. Maybe we should be doing it ourselves. I mean, I'm all for, I'm all for businesses more efficiently, more cost effectively being able to provide government services. But this is an example where you've got you know general practitioners who go to school for a fairly long time and work hard and have their own overhead and all that stuff, getting paid half as much to do the same job. Now, it's not apples and apples exactly, obviously, but it's definitely a challenge. And then, and then you move that over to these large capital projects, for example, the emergency room. And what's happened is when, when, when the government did the mental health hospital public-private partnership, there was three bidders. They didn't take the lowest. And that sent a message. There's really not that many companies in Canada that are all that interested in having the risk of coming to Newfoundland and bidding on one of these projects. Not many capable of doing it anyway, because you've got to be able to not only put together a consortium of people, mechanical and contracting and all the different parts to, to build a hospital or a large project, but you also have to be able to get the financing. 
And so it's a pretty large project, and it's a very expensive to put together a project, a bid like that. So, so the message has obviously been sent to these large contractors because all of them backed off bidding on the pension on the on the prison. So the replacement for HMP is now a sole source contract, and and that has significant costs too because now you don't even have now basically it's a blank check. Now they're capping it at three hundred twenty-five million dollars. However, we're in an inflationary environment. You know, when they when they had the emergency room at the at the health science, going to be X amount, and then all of a sudden it ends up being forty million dollars, way more. And in the world of of government contracts and and large contracts, contractors will have what's called throwing a grenade at a job, which is when, you know, they don't think they're going to get it, or they're so busy that if they do get it, they want to make sure they make lots of money on projects. And it seems like that is now the environment that the that the province of Newfoundland, which by default means the taxpayers of Newfoundland are now in when they're dealing with these large capital projects like hospitals and stuff like that. So when I look at when I look at you know what's the difference, um, the way it works is obviously one of these large consortiums has to get together and then they have to borrow the money. Now they borrow money at significantly more than say, say the province of Newfoundland would borrow it at. Say they would borrow it at say say the province could borrow it at four percent or four and a half percent. They will borrow it maybe at eight percent or something along those lines. But then on top of that, they'll then build in a cushion. They'll they'll put an extra. So you you know that'd be their cost of capital, and this would apply whether an oil company is building a GBS. It doesn't really matter. And generally, that right now is probably ten, maybe even eleven percent. Could even be higher than that. There's no way to know. But if you look at the cost of the taxpayer, the difference between the four percent on say um, HMP, for example, uh, the difference between the four percent and say 10%, it will actually cost the government, i.e. the taxpayers, $360 million more on a $200 million uh, bill cost. But if you go to the 325, it'll actually cost us $682,000 more. In the long run, the difference between us borrowing the money and, or a contractor borrowing the money, you know, it's just basically going to cost over twice as much money just in interest costs. You know, and, and you know, it's it's tantamount to the, literally the taxpayers all going down to Easy Home or one of these payday loan places or re- leased to own places and saying we want a really nice building down there. We don't want to put it on our on our books because you know the finance minister trumpets how we're paying down debt and we're you know, but but lost in that conversation is the 120 million dollar long term care facility in Corner Brook, the 723 million dollar in Western Memorial Regional, the 355 million dollar adult mental health and addictions, the 40.5 million health science. Now the health science is not actually a, a PPP, but the other ones are all PPPs, public private partnerships, and and that doesn't show up on our books. But the other benefit to this is that it's supposed to save us money because you know the the consortium looks after maintenance. Well, now the deal is they're only looking after maintenance on the outdoor outside. And after 30 years, it reverts to us, the taxpayer. So then we're going to have to look after maintenance anyway. So most new bills are going to be, should be, if they're built properly with proper oversight, whether a consortium builds them or we build them with a consortium, um, you know, 30 years, usually stuff holds up pretty good. But after that, any issues are going to be on us anyway. So, you know, I just, I just, I just don't know how we, how we, be better, you know, stewards of our money and realize where all this is going. Appreciate the time, Tom. Thanks for the call. Can I just insert one thing in? Quickly. This is positive. Uh, on s- Saturday at 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. at our indoor frontline action facility, we're going to be doing a, a, um, a winter fun day. 
and all the proceeds, $20 a person, will go to uh, local food banks, but we're also going to match it. So uh, anybody needs more information can just reach out to Frontline Action. Good luck with it. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take that break. When we come back, COP15 in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Mike. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. Good morning. morning. Patty, I love, I love listening to your caller, Tom, whenever he calls in. He's so well-researched and well-spoken. And uh, But uh, listening to him, I can't, can't help but feeling down a bit, I must admit. All he's doing is telling the truth. And uh, and backing it up with the numbers, uh, but it sure indicates, um, you know, a lack of acumen or, or maybe a, a level of skullduggery, I don't know, uh, by our province in um, in spending our money. You know what we what we get fed, and what we uh, what's actually going on seem to be two different things. You know what? Wh- what do you look at as being an example of skullduggery, for instance? Well, I view it as skullduggery, like uh, the uh, the homes or the various differences in contracts is when they're allocated and the reasons they're allocated that they are, like not the lowest, things like that. Uh, and what actually is the cost? And I, I think the grenade comparison that Tom used there is a good indicator of this. These things never come in on cost. I mean, we can go right back and look at muskrat, and I'm sure other things as well. The aquaculture end of it out there, the money we put into that, uh, is that, oh, they're going to cause this. But there's all this small print in there, you know, that nobody really talks about at the beginning. But uh, And I think it's deliberately structured that way. I think government uh, puts it out that way as they, oh, yeah, look what we're going to do. Aren't we wonderful? This is great. And at the end of the day, when it's all done, they say, oh, well, it was inflation, you know, or we had problems sourcing materials or COVID got in the way. There's always an excuse. And it doesn't seem like anybody is ever held accountable. If this was one instance of, of it happening, I can understand, Patty. We're a big business. Government's a big business. But this is time after time after time. And 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 so, yeah, there's gross incompetence by our purchasing agency. Um, or uh, these contracts are awarded. Yes, to friends of government, um, and uh, they're awarded knowing full well that the taxpayer is not protected the way it should be, and there's little, if any, or no risk on the contracts that are getting those contracts, getting those uh, those agreements. Well, Patty, if I may, I'd I'd like to speak on a different different topic. I know you have limited time. No, that's okay. Just a quick comment, though. The PPPs are feel-good now, long-term pain. I mean, that's how it's worked out the vast majority of the time. You know, I don't know if I've ever seen the, you know, break it down for me like I'm 15 years old. What are the differences between the government taking it on as they normally would in years past versus the PPP over the course of 5, 10, 20, and 30 years at the end of these arrangements, these agreements? Just show us so we can have a clear understanding of what it looks like. Then we can do some evaluation of whether or not the short-term relief is worth it. Likely on a variety of projects that we've seen go absolutely sideways regarding the taxpayer's long-term commitment. It's a risk. Is it a risk worth taking? Or is this the go-to model now because government always needs and wants to do something to create the atmosphere that we're progressing, that things are being done, infrastructure is being replaced, jobs are being created. And that's okay now, but in their four-year cycle of the need to be re-elected, that does not mean it's good in the long term for me or you. And we don't have a breakdown to have a firm understanding of exactly what that looks like. 
And 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 there is you know perhaps skullduggery may be a tough word or maybe it may not be tough enough according to some, but that's what I'm talking about. Is say hide this. You're right. The PPPs in particular. I mean, uh, Tom just did a great job of laying it out in my opinion. Is is that now? It's like these payday loan things. You know, oh, we're going to give you the money now. Have all this now. But they're not saying the down the road the cost to our our children, our grandchildren are huge. And compared to what we could have if we went a different way. Anyway, uh, it's a great topic and, and a great topic for, I'd like to talk about it another day. But if I may okay. today, I'd, li- I'd like to refer to COP15. Now, for those who may not be aware of it, COP is an acronym for Conference of Parties. And uh, what, what happened is in 1992 in Rio, uh, the United Nations held this big conference on, uh, in Rio de Janeiro. And uh, one of the things, they came out with a whole bunch of conventions. And they had a convention on conservation and protection of biodiversity. That's what it was. And there's a whole bunch of interested countries in that. I forget what it is, over 100, I believe. And uh, they all, this is the second time this particular group is getting together. But uh, they started last week in their meeting in Montreal. And everybody is enjoying a few bottles of schnapps, you know, and they're all sitting around. And you got Dr. This and Dr. That talking to Dr. Somebody else. And a bunch of lobby groups that are up there, advocacy groups that are up there. And, uh, not a whole lot of people who are living uh, who are living uh, the, what what they're going to impact, which brings me to Newfoundland and Labrador. One of the things they're discussing with great intensity up there, and one totally supported by Minister St- Stephen Guillebeau, a former leader of Greenpeace. One of the things pushed by him is the use of the Fisheries Act as sort of a club, not as sort of a, a you know something that aids something along, as a club to beat into place fisheries bans and additional 62 species over and above where they are now and marine protected areas to enable Canada to look good to the UN and all of these co-participants in this conference. Now, how that's coming about is they're, they're going to allocate these marine protected areas Excluded from them, but given, I'll call it special status within them, it's going to be Canada's Aboriginal people, and rightfully so, God knows what we did to them. But uh, the other people who are going to be excluded from that are the small boats, the coastal communities around Newfoundland and Labrador and other parts of Canada. They're just going to be excluded. They're going to say, I'm sorry, you can't go in there and, and fish. The union will get an allocation. But the offshore will get a big allocation, and local processors have now purchased boats or they form partnerships with Aboriginal groups to be go out to be able to go out and harvest those species. But nobody from Newfoundland and Labrador, other than the Department of Conservation, is at that representing the interests of uh, inshore harvesters in Newfoundland and Labrador. Nobody. Uh, and even the Department of Conservation, Patty, I tried to find out and get in touch last week, last couple of weeks with somebody from the Department of Fisheries. They sent me, go said, that's not ours. That's a Department of Conservation issue because departments fight about themselves who got what. So I sent it to Conservation. Conservation said, oh, we don't know anything about the fisheries end of it. You should speak to the wildlife and people out on the West Coast and Department of Fisheries and Wildlife. So I go to the wildlife. They sent me back into fisheries. 
fisheries say, oh, oh no, that's, that's not us. That's federal fisheries and federal conservation. So nobody from the provincial department of fisheries, Patty, is there. Not a soul. And the people in the department of conservation, when I spoke to them about marine protected areas and uh, and bans on species, based on junk science. I've read that science. It comes from BFO, which nobody trusts, and was disproven at the latest seal summit. And based on independent advocacy statistics put out by put out by groups lobbying for causes. They're now going ahead and they're going to uh, work to this guy, Diobo, working with the former head of the uh, International Fund for Animal Welfare, the former head of uh, the uh, World Wildlife Fund, and Mr. Diobo himself are the main pushers for the bands off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador. I'm not even so, 100% sure what... Gibo is using the fishing industry as a tool in this regard anyway. I, I'm not sure I'm following along, to be honest with you. Well, that's good. I understand that because you, we're not supposed to. And, uh, and this is like the, we were talking about the PPPs a few minutes ago. It's not the stuff you see. It's the stuff that you don't see. Gibo is the Minister of Environment and, and uh, Conservation for the Government of Canada. The Government of Canada has a commitment to have 30% of its land and ocean masses uh, set aside and, and species protected to meet uh, the 30% goal on the UN. Now, how they do that is they take some things on land and they have the, and the conservation and climate people now have focused on the ocean being a big carbon sink and, you know, and we've got to protect it because it says conservation and biodiversity, which means the animals, the fish and that kind of stuff, that's what the convention on. It's under the uh, under the um, under the Department of Conservation federally, and they have the powers now to to use this newly modeled Fisheries Act to arbitrarily shut down fishing on certain species and to impose marine protection and marine protected areas. That's where Gilebo comes into this. And we all know Gilebo's leading, or at least I do, from his days in Greenpeace, who were forced to apologize to the Aboriginal people. We have not yet apologized to the hate and the threats of death and everything else to the coastal people here. So, yeah, I'm concerned. Uh, I'm concerned more because what we're not doing, not what we are doing as a province in Newfoundland and Labrador. Even the, the, the Fish Food Allied Workers Union didn't have any, now they're, they're going to turmoil in all fairness to them, but they didn't have anybody from right here in these offices on site. They have some, I think, from Unipor, maybe somebody from Nova Scotia or something like that. Uh, but provincial fisheries is not there. None of the other groups are here. They're all la la and la now everything's fine. But uh, for those who lived through the 70s and 80s, we know quite well what the federal government of Canada is willing to trade off from Newfoundland and Labrador to look good in the eyes of other countries. And I say that's what's going to come on COP15. And yet we had representation at COP27 in Egypt, but nobody in Montreal. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> well, the, the, the sort of the, the, the head-shaking moment, moment in Egypt is... Uh, uh, the Minister of Conservation, Bernard Davis. Yeah. That's right. Uh, he, he tweeted out this uh, wonderful picture of meeting with the 
Climate Canadian Climate Institute in uh, in Egypt. It was a wonderful picture of him and and the, and the Climate Institute. So thank you very much for meeting us, and we look forward to a continued good relationship. And the minister's response, yes, and we look forward to meeting with you and continuing on. But what Mr. Davis didn't realize, the one he was talking to in the tweet and the glowing picture in the tweet is the former executive director of the International Fund for Animal Welfare. That group pillared the people of Newfoundland and Labrador as murderous barbarians, seal killers, and uh, and were just piling out this this uh, massive uh, misinformation and everything through the newspapers and everything. And here's this guy now wearing a conservation coat, coat and who's his best buddy in Egypt? By our own Minister Davis. And uh, so I, I, I tweeted, I, first of all, I called a couple of times and say, hey, you know, you guys should be aware of this. You know, this is not exactly the people you want to hang around with on conservation areas. And no, nobody replied. Nobody replied. So I tweeted it out. The next day I got a call from assistant deputy minister. Well, well, we didn't know what was going on. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, anyway, yeah. Anyway, Patty, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank uh, you. I had a cursory look at the okay. Living Planet report for this uh, year. Yeah. Uh, some of the headline grabbers, and there's some pretty easy-to-digest charts in it about biodiversity and the decline in biodiversity worldwide. And a lot of it has a lot of different links with research done by some of the top institutions in the world. But one headline that just immediately grabbed my attention was, uh, wildlife populations have declined by an average of 69% in the past 50 years. Just yeah, put that I, out I, there. I, it's just uh, yeah. alarming stuff. Mike, yeah, appreciate if, the time. Yeah, if it's accurate, Pat, but I, 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 don't, I don't really trust most of it to be honest with you. Some of it probably is but I don't know what is and what's not. That's the problem this whole thing. Well I don't imagine there's, I don't know if the number is 69% or 52% or whatever the case may be but we see it all the time whether it be in the rainforest and or just population sprawl everywhere in the world. Of course it's going to have a negative impact on biodiversity yes, and long will until something yes. is uh, done about it. But I appreciate the call and the time this morning Mike. Thank you very much Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye bye. All right, uh, break time. When we come back, Peter's there to talk about 811. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Peter. You're on the air. Hi. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm a little bit rotted with the whole 811 fiasco that came out last week, especially with uh, my um, my personal experience with it. And I think we should be more outraged about this complete mismanagement of our money. Okay, well, let's give folks some numbers for context so we know exactly what we're talking about. So 811 was, in essence, born out of necessity, but... The disparity in the rate of pay afforded to 811 versus our own doctors is madness. So uh, $82 per call goes to PhoneMed, which is the company that operates the 811 system. That's 82 bucks to them. It rises to $92 at the final year of the contract, which is in 2027. For family doctors, 37 bucks for a routine in-person appointment, and it is $47 for a virtual appointment, and that with a cap of 40 virtual appointments per day. The doctors are disgusted. They should be more than disgusted. They should be insulted, especially considering that every time you call 811 looking for medical assistance, you're directed to go see a doctor. 
probably the worst part of it all. We're absolutely paying twice in many instances. See a doctor within 24 we're hours or go to the emergency room. This way. We're right. paying triple this way for seeing a doctor. I mean, I, uh, I called there last night because I had a, quest- a question about the dosage of my medication. That should be within the wheelhouse of what 811 are capable of telling me, of giving me advice, medical advice on. That should be completely within their wheelhouse. They directed me to go see a doctor. They directed me to go to the emergency room, actually. Are you still there, Peter? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, there is an absolute problem of our own making here. One of the problems, of course, became the fact that when the government went to the market to see who was interested in providing this type of service, only one response to the RFP. So the question should automatically be, with only one reply or response, do we go back to the drawing board, maybe recraft a new RFP, go back out to the market, see if we can get some competition? We didn't do it. We accepted the one bid, and here we are. Exactly. Like, complete mismanagement of our money. They didn't even, like, they did, it seemed... I don't understand why they would look at this breakdown of service and go, okay, yeah, that's fine. Like, sure, we'll, we'll pay them double, over double what we do our doctors to have them tell our, our, our taxpayers to go see a doctor, which they can't access. Or even if you can, we'll pay the doctor $37 and the $82 for the, the comment that is, go see a doctor. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't even understand why we have this service. Like, we should we should cancel the contract right away and pay out some sort of way of getting out of it. it like, it's it's really, I have no idea how this could even be considered a good idea. Hard to know what the contract actually looks like, what penalties for breaking it or breaching it might be. I really don't know because if it is as severe as a high percentage of a contractual payout, then we might have to have a conversation about whether or not it's worth it. But it is alarming to know that like, even the minister responsible currently says that you know it's not apples to apples. They offer a comprehensive suite of offerings through a variety of disciplines, and they're there 24-7, which... Obviously, if you go to a family doctor, a GP offers a wide, comprehensive suite of offerings inside their uh, their clinic. They schooled for years and years and years. We're trying to get them to come and get them to stay. And now at this point, they look at that and say, you mean that the nurse practitioner on the other end of the phone and the company's making 82 bucks and you pay me 37 Of course that's going to have a ripple effect throughout the profession. Of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I don't even understand... Why 811, if they keep on saying they have this comprehensive uh, thing that they can offer the public, why they keep referring us to a doctor? Yeah. I mean, I was without a family doctor for six years. In every single call that I've had with 811, it's always ended with, go see a doctor. Every single one. I would actually ask people to call into VOCM if they ever have called 811 and not have them tell them to see a doctor. 
Yeah, I've, I've never used the service personally, so I don't have any personal experience. But whoever is listening to the show today and maybe they had some pragmatic advice coming from 811 that kept them out of the emergency room or from a walk-in clinic or whatever, they're welcome to call the show and share their experience. But I hear an awful lot very similar to your story. Most of that via email. When I wish some of the emailers would call because they tell quite interesting tales sometimes is... That's all the service they got was you have to see a doctor, whether it be the immediacy of within 24 hours, which creates a real panic, especially if you're calling about your sick child, as was the story coming from CBS last week, a little three-year-old. They finally managed to get it settled and solved and saw a doctor. But if anyone wants to tell me how their 811 experience went, they're more than welcome to call the show. Thank you. Appreciate the time, Peter. No problem. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, I mean... The numbers are just brand new as of last week. And so with every issue we've talked about, the rate of pay, the work-life balance, the trying to tailor-make an offering uh, for incentives to get people to practice in more smaller, rural, remote communities in the province, then you add this to it? Oh, man. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, lots of show left to speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five. Say good morning to the St. John City Councillor, who's the lead on finance. That's Ron Ellsworth. Councillor Ellsworth, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on this morning. Happy to have you on. Let's start with the surplus at the end of 2021. Remind the listener exactly what factored into a $21 million surplus. Well, that's a multiple year of minor savings per year. Like if we say, if we come in under budget of 2 or 3%, then you're looking at 3 or $4 million dollars. Individually, it doesn't give you a lot of room in the budget year. If you're able to uh, accumulate your surpluses, then you can do things like we did last year where we paid down $11.2 million on long-term debt, which in turn is now saving us a million and a half dollars per year in debt financing charges. Uh, in 2016, we made a pension change. That's now see, we're seeing savings of $2.5 million a year. So, you know, strategic financial investments that allow us to recoup savings that can be reinvested then into operational costs uh, is good financial management and good long-term financial management. How does that factor into the municipality's legislative requirement to deliver a balanced budget? So what's the protocol surrounding how that money can either be saved year over year and or spent on an annual budget? Is there any formal process? What we're required to do by law is uh, have revenue and expenses matched during the budget process. We can't budget for uh, a deficit, and we're not allowed to carry a deficit. Um, So obviously, uh, we work very hard on the budgeting to make sure we come as close as we can to the numbers, but also uh, leave some opportunity that if things go one way or the other during the year, you're able to adjust and at the end of the year, if you see a savings of a million and a half, two million, three million, then that can be accumulated in a surplus to use like we've done this current year to avoid any mill rate increases. Okay, and one of the numbers that jumps off the page, and it was a big topic of conversation for quite a long time, was St. John Sports and Entertainment. There's been some significant upheaval, and of course the pandemic caused the doors to be shuttered for quite some time. An increase in their operating grants of $961,000, bringing the operating grant in excess of $6 million, as I read. Is there any thought as to why the city is still so unwilling to relinquish itself, any authority or ownership and or costs associated with St. John Sports and Entertainment, especially when there have been business people come forward, notably Dean McDonald, to say, we'll take it on with no pu- public monies required. 
why are we still up subsidizing that operation if there's a way out? So, Dan, so you alluded to the last couple of years, and yes, there's been a few tough years at St. John Sports Entertainment. But at present, um, we're seeing a new board in place with great chairmanship with Steve Den. Uh, JL Brewer is the new CEO of St. John Sports Entertainment. Uh, our major tenants, both the hockey and the basketball, it's all working well together. Uh, Mary Brown themselves, Mary Brown Center name, it's working well together. And you're starting to see um, the positive coming out of all the restructuring work that's being done. But obviously, with the conventions and convention center, you're year two or three or four before we get there. On the issue of the increase of the um, monies required, it's no different than the rest of our recreation facilities. All the facilities in the city of St. John's cost the taxpayers money to run and operate, and you have to look at why you're running and operating the facilities. For example, be it Paul Reynolds or Kim Mount Terrace uh, Community Center, we run those to offer programs and services to our community and to our residents. And we've always viewed uh, St. John's Sports Entertainment, both the stadium and the convention center, as an economic driver for our community to support our business community who then in turn support our residents, who then in turn support residential ownership and investments and money in the community. So, you know, it's an economic investment piece that you have to look at. And as I stated yesterday during the budget and during the uh, Scrum Book Media afterwards, what we're seeing right now at St. John's Sports Entertainment is a revenue issue, not an expense issue. As the calendars start to fill up for both venues, as uh, more people start to come back to the facilities. Um, and yesterday I made a point of encouraging people to partake in the hockey entertainment, to partake in the basketball entertainment, because these are business people also trying to run business coming out of the pandemic. And if they sell more tickets, their business does well. If we get more people in the facilities buying food and beverage, the St. John Sports Entertainment does well. At the end of the day, we all move forward together. I guess the difference for me would be, you know, for instance, whoever, someone private sector takes on the entirety of the operations, their collective best interest and their business bottom line would continue to grow the offerings. They wouldn't be as risk adverse as the board has been in years past. They'd want to do well. Consequently, the local businesses would see the benefits afforded to them by activity, whether it be the convention center and or Mary Brown Center, very much unlike the Paul Reynolds Community Center, where nobody wants to buy that, but somebody wants to buy the St. John Sports and Entertainment interest. So I've never really understood the issues surrounding, well, maybe there wouldn't be a briar, but why wouldn't a private business uh, owner want to not bring the briar to town? Because it was an economic boon for the facility and the entire city. So that's the part I've never been able to square. I understand, Patty. And once again, I'll go back to the general mindset of the facility. And the, the reality is um, people in our community and reports coming out of the university way lot years ago, talked about people that only have X number of dollars for entertainment and they're only going to go and spend the X number of dollars. So it's not like we can create a lot more entertainment value or money other than shifting the money around at times. Um, you know, with regards to the operations at the center and convention center, we've seen the expansion happening at the center uh, with convention center. We've seen um, other venues, uh, improvements happening there. And also as we move forward, um, as Jerry Smith used to say, a formal chair, if you right-size the operation for the right-size business, uh, things come in line. And here we are just about to enter the snow-clearing season in full. 
And one of the bugaboos for so many people in the city, especially pedestrians, and I would suggest motorists as well, is that when people think that they have to walk on the road, it creates a dangerous atmosphere for all. So an additional over $300,000 for better snow clearing at pedestrian crossings. How carefully do we watch the manpower and human resources associated with it? The reason I ask, specifically yesterday. Little dusting of snow in the morning. By the time I went out to the grocery store later in the afternoon, here came a sidewalk clearing uh, machine coming down Portugal Cove Road and nothing to be cleared. How carefully do we manage those things? Because that's not nickel and diming it. That's an overall annual cost that we don't necessarily have to suffer if there's nothing for the machine to clear. Yeah, one of the biggest challenges we have with uh, snow clearing, be it sidewalk or streets, Patty, is the freeze-thaw cycles that happen. And, yes, we may get a dusting of snow, and people may think there's no need for equipment to go down the road, but the equipment is also used to spread salt, uh, both streets and sidewalks. Um, so the freeze-thaw cycle for us becomes a very complicated, complex thing to manage in how we assess our equipment and put equipment out. And to be honest, uh, I'm glad our staff do it. Um, they hear on caution rather than uh, going the other way. I think we've recently seen out of uh, one of the communities on the mainland where there's a court case around where a municipality decided not to uh, do some snow clearing at some point and ended up getting sued for not doing their due diligence part. So I'm glad that we're, we're on the cautious side when we're going that equipment. And I get the commentary, Patty, uh, but the expertise uh, within the city all and the snow clearing group um, they're cautious about how they go out and do things. They're cautious about when they send equipment. If equipment's on the road, it's got decisions were made to keep the community safe rather than save dollars. Yeah, and I think that example of a municipality getting sued was they didn't actually clear snow-covered steps when, in fact, when there's snow down, we have to clear it. Whatever the city responsibility is has to be done timely, snow removed, salted, uh, applied, so people understand that. A couple of quick ones before we run out of time. There's also some, and these are not huge numbers inside an annual budget of over $333 million, but an extra almost couple of million dollars on Metrobus. Two extra buses on Route Number 2, an extra bus on Route Number 10. Did we see ridership numbers required? Look, public transportation is not utilized nearly enough in this city, and maybe it's a, uh, an issue of if you bill it, they will come. Better shelters, more frequency of express routes, all the things that have been noted. Do the ridership numbers drive this because we did see an increase it was free on the bus for a long time public transportation was relatively popular during portions of the pandemic but do the ridership numbers support this decision in your opinion well yes i guess from the point of view of numbers up but we also got to be clear patty that uh, i think i noted in the budget that we're up 16 percent on ridership 16 percent of ridership doesn't mean an increase in revenue um, I think some of this, and I'm going to give some credit to uh, Minister John Abbott and his uh, staff, uh, who funded the pass for seniors and low-income uh, folks at almost $2 million. So we have more riders on the bus. It doesn't mean we have more paid ridership. Uh, so certainly there is a balance when it comes to providing services and programs under dollars. But, yes, the improvements that have taken place, the additions of the buses on Route 2 and 10 in particular, are a direct correlation of needs for those routes and getting people timely moved on those routes. Um, and you're right, we don't see enough people using transit, but it's this you know, Orson Kurtz scenario, right? We need money to build the capacity to get more, uh, I guess, more usable for people. We need more people using it in order to get the revenue to have the money to do the improvements. So, same as city, uh, I sit on the commission, and same process there for me is directed small steps to move us forward at a pace that we can afford to do the improvements as we're doing them. 
Yeah, some of the ridership numbers went up, of course, with people getting Metro bus pass if they were receiving income support, for instance. Uh, last word goes to you, Councillor El- Ellsworth. Anything else you'd like to highlight or maybe a follow-up question from me? Well, there is, there is. The, the councils work very hard to mitigate the increased expenses. We understand that our residents and business communities are suffering uh, and are suffering through the, the, the inflationary cost. And we're trying to manage that to the best of our ability, yet have targeted investments that we can afford to have. And once again, I just want to make the comment about St. John's Sports Entertainment. I really want to encourage people to get out and use and utilize the facilities, use and utilize the entertainment value that's there. Because the bottom line is, if people are not going to be showing up, if people are not going to be buying tickets, then it's only a matter of time until these opportunities are not there. Appreciate the time this morning, Councillor. Thanks for your time, Patty. I really appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Councillor Ron Ellsworth. He's the lead on finance at the City of St. John's. Time for the news. When we come back, it's 811. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Derek. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Merry Christmas to you. You too. Uh, regarding this, I'm just calling pretty much who says this 8111 call. Okay. Uh, my daughter's still waiting for yesterday, actually, yesterday morning for a call, 6.30, and my son had called this morning, and then he told him to go to the emergency right away. So, uh, and I've been called a few times, too, and they even told me to go to the emergency because of my health conditions, and then I've got into emergency, I did probably 10 minutes, see my doctor and gone for, for nothing. So, I don't know why they're sending people to the hospital when they don't have to. Well, you know what? It's a fair question. I assume there are some liability issues. You know, if they don't advise you to see a doctor and something goes horribly wrong, then what? So I'm guessing that drives some of the advice coming from this particular company. We'd love to have uh, Miss Brophy on, Charlene Brophy, who owns PhoneMed, or at least is the president and CEO of PhoneMed, to talk about some things like not only the contract and the origin of and the only bid, but things about liability because... My mother can tell me to go to the hospital. I don't need someone at the other end of a phone line to tell me to go to the hospital or see a doctor. I called to see if there was anything that could keep me from going to see the doctor. So as soon as that that last caller hung up, I got 25 emails saying very similar experience. Either I didn't get a call back or all I was told was go to, go to the doctor. Yeah, I mean, I mean, your father had 102 temperatures, so I could see that. Yep. Right? But, I mean, there's many times I've been found Patty, and I went to that hospital for no reason at all. Right. And I mean, what's the chances of our doctors walking out on this? Can they walk out? Are they, do they have the ability to walk out, uh, walk out on uh, all, our, all their patients? No, I don't think so. I don't think they can withdraw service in full. But they are across. We had Dr. Chris Luscombe, who's the president of the NLMA, on last week. And you could hear the frustration in his voice. And I would imagine he's being bombarded by his members. You know, I mean, God bless our health care workers because they're working so hard. And I wish them all a Merry Christmas and everybody at VOCM too. Patty, you have a good day. I got my two cents for it. <laughs> I appreciate it, Derek. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, that just popped in my head while speaking with Derek is if the advice is simply going to be go to the doctor. Now, there's always been some phone numbers you can call to see whether or not you should go to the emergency room. I remember especially using the pediatric helpline at Eastern Health when my boys were small. You know, because you'd have that worry, and the first reaction is, well, I've got to do something for you, kid, and maybe that means a trip over to the Janeway. So we called a few times, you know, when they were sick, and especially when there was fevers kicking around and or ear infections and the like. 
And, you know, that was very helpful, and there was some comfort offered by calling that pediatric helpline. I'm not sure that's exactly what it's called, but you know what I'm referring to. But the 811 bit, hmm. Let's see what Roy thinks about it on one. Roy, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Great today. How are you doing? Oh, I um, I would like to make some com- uh, a comment on the guy that had spoken about the 811 number there earlier and the, an experience that I had there a while ago, and it wasn't that long ago, actually. But from my understanding, listening to TalkVac and other people, uh, we are paying a tremendous amount of money to this company that's supposed to be filling in, I think, for doctors. Am I right? 811 is filling in for doctors? Yeah. Well, I suppose it could be couched like that, but not really. I mean, they're nurse practitioners at the other end of the line. So I haven't yet to hear someone tell me that, well, I called it, I got what I needed, I didn't have to go to the doctor after all, and I'm feeling better. Until we hear some of those stories, your story, Peter's story, Derek's story, are probably going to rule the roost. Well, I'll tell you what my story is. Okay, let's hear it. My story is... uh, I call because uh, I have uh, medical issues and I, I really am trying to stay away from having to go to the hospital and whatnot because there's such long waits and stuff like that. And I have breathing problems, so I'm trying to stay away from the flu and, 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 and this uh, other viruses on the go. But anyway, I uh, called here the other day about trying to get a, 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 a drug that was prescribed for me, and I wanted to get it uh, re, uh, redone again, right, because I was almost out. And uh, anyway, uh, I called, and uh, the first time I uh, – well, when I called, uh, I was speaking to the lady, and she was going to get somebody to call me back. And anyway, when they did call me back, before I got a chance to even speak, they hung up. And so anyway, I tried to call them back again, and finally, anyway, long, short story is, Patty, before uh, – most of the day was eat up before I finally got a chance to talk to somebody who then turned around and told me that that particular drug that I was requiring was uh, something that only a doctor could prescribe, you know. Uh, it, was a sweet, it was a simple sleeping pill, and uh, they weren't able to do anything on their end. I had to go to an emergency or see a doctor, and I don't have a doctor, unlike a whole lot of other people on this island. And I think it is ridiculous. My day was wasted. I'm not still going to end up having to go to emergency to try to get this particular drug uh, done, uh, get this drug. And we're paying out all this money. For what? Like, that's what I'm saying. You're like, why are we paying out all this money and when this money could probably be turned around and used to health care system and trying to get doctors or whatever? This service that they're offering is is... is it's I don't know. It, it's ridiculous, and we are the taxpayers. As far as I'm concerned, the taxpayers are the employer of the government. And if they can't do and get the doctors that we need, and we can't get the health care that we should have, then maybe these guys should get him all together. And maybe the people on this island should almost revolt. I said almost. I didn't say revolt. Should almost revolt and say we've had enough. You guys have had long enough to do something with this health care system. I mean, we—I don't know what the statistics are, Patty, but I would strongly think there are people either if they're not dying, they soon will be dying because they can't get to see a doctor. And this is ridiculous. As far as I'm concerned, it has to stop. And I would implore everybody on this island to just say we've had enough. We demand better. And that's the reason why I've called today 
Patty, because I'm so thoroughly disgusted with the fact that I even had to make a. I went to I went to the hospital there about three weeks ago to see if I still had my uh, infection, a sinus infection, and I wanted to uh, see if I should continue the medicine that I was on. And you know, Patty, I was there in that hospital for twelve hours. Twelve hours I was waiting to see somebody just to find out if I still had my infection and did I did I need to re- was or should I continue my medication. I don't know what anybody else thinks, but I think this is unsatisfactory, really. Like this day and age, the money that we're paying the government and this is the kind of service that we're getting, lip service. They're going to make things better. They're going to make things better. They're going to make things better. Well, you know what? It hasn't been made better. And in my opinion, if they can't do better than what they're doing, maybe they all should just resign. Just get it over with, resign, and let somebody else come in who will try to do better. But anyway, that's my take on it, Patty, and thank you for giving me a chance to air my view. I appreciate the call, Roy. Thank you. You're welcome. Take good care. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, just some additional numbers on that particular service. So the contract is from 2022 to 2027, or the extension. It's cost $31 million. They expect a call volume in and around 72,000 calls per year. And if that's the case, it works out to 82 bucks per call in the first year. In the final year of the contract, that number is going to rise to more than $92 per call. After the 72,000 calls, if we exceed that call volume at 811, then the cost drops to between $57.50 and $66.10 per call. And, of course, sometimes I never know what's going to pique the interest and provoke the callers. And if that is the topic that you'd like to get into today, we can do exactly that after this break. But remember, the topic is completely and entirely up to you. We're taking that break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the show. Okay, let's go. Line number two, Rhonda, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to Um, do it. Eight one one, fabulous. Abs, I have no complaints about their service. Uh, in August, when we were going to the hospital to hear about the mom's DNR, etc., my uh, son's girlfriend was on her way to pick me up. It would take about ten minutes, but in that time, knowing that I, where I was going, like I melted down and I called eight one one. The issue I have with eight one one is that. Before I even got to the person that would handle my situation, it took all that time to take my information. Now, with stress, I don't know where I could have ended up. By the time I got somebody to handle my situation, my son's girlfriend walked in and we went to the hospital. So I don't even know where, you know, how I would have been handled. But what if that was me having some kind of high blood sugar incident? Because I do know now I had two admissions when I was at another spot recently and my blood sugar was like 50. I didn't know how high my blood sugar could go at the time until I was admitted. And then to know my mental status, like if I was in that that state calling 811 and had to wait 10 minutes, I Hazard to guess how I could have ended up if it was somebody with a head injury, with a heart issue. Like the situations are staggering for that amount of time to pass before you even get to a person who will handle your situations. Is that not a concern? Well, I I assume so, yes. But 
are, you know, there are some medical issues where the consideration to call 811 is probably not anybody's go-to or number one option. If it's a heart-related matter or a, a diabetic episode or a uh, some other obvious traumatic issue that requires a visit to the emergency room, I don't know why people would call 811 in that circumstance, though. Well, this is what I'm saying. Like, when I had high blood sugar, my mental status was so... Like, it was almost that I was hallucinating. Things weren't real. So that 10 minutes, uh, it don't have... Like, I could call into 811 with a total wrong thought process, and it could be detrimental. And the 10-minute period, no matter what the state is, that's too long to be directed to. Like, they were taking your uh, MCP number and stuff like this. There has to be a fast track to where you're going to get seen to because I tell you, a panic attack can lead to a pass out pretty quickly, which can lead to a head injury. Like the, the scenarios that I've encountered, uh, I had a I had a face plant when I thought it was a low blood sugar incident one day, my first time after being diagnosed as insulin-dependent diabetic, I just stood up from a kitchen table and I felt like an electrical shock. And then next thing I know, I'm waking up and like, wow, what happened? So, like, there's so many scenarios. This time frame is too long. And one other quote, all I got to say, I hear about all these studies and all these people are calling in. And somebody said to call in, like I hear on your broadcast earlier, let's start talking about all these people that had had Whatever kind of uh, scenarios happen with 811, I think a study got to be done on it, but I think a study has to be done on uh, with us, the people that use and operate 811. Get rid of all the people coming in from other places. If we want to get active information done on what's being done for us, to us, we got to be included in these studies. I think every individual on this island should take part or start an initiative and let's start doing studies on us, for us, by us. I think that's the only way to start to start getting some answers. And what does that mean exactly, uh, Rhonda? I don't know. I just I just came into my mind that I hear about the Marjorie Taylor Greene and I'm, my thought process is a little bit, I'm more active to hearing things and it's resonating with me lately and I just see so many stories of so many people that gotta talk about things and I think the whole province should start thinking about how to do a study on a go forward basis and maybe change the way studies are done then maybe the 811s can get fine-tuned properly if we have more people taking actual stories and input and constructing them in a better way i don't know if it's a study but it's a decent way to start by taking our stories and directing them and using them where they should be focused on okay i don't know yeah, you know, I don't know what the solution is here, and nobody wants to hear it, but this is the facts of the matter. Wait times, whether it be callbacks on services like 811 and or presenting yourself uh, at an emergency and or waiting for a specialist appointment or a procedure or diagnostic imaging, Canadians are waiting longer now than we ever have any time in our history since the adoption of universal health care. There is something going on. Look, the system, we pat ourselves on the back as Canadians with this universal health care. Some people call it free yeah. health care, but there's nothing free in this world, including health care. We pay for it indirectly with yeah. our tax dollars, but it's not working. 
It's as simple as that. It's fine to know that you're not going to be bankrupt if you get a cancer diagnosis because of the cost of treatment. But if it's not working, why are we not getting a bit more of a national conversation about what we need to do as opposed to the premiers, and I don't blame them, demanding more healthcare transfer dollars. But it's not mm-hmm. simply all about money. If it was, we wouldn't have this problem. We spend about a third of the budget provincially on health care, and we're not getting the desired positive health care outcomes, nor are we chipping away at issues regarding wait times and or more recruitment of health care workers. So if it's not working, I would suggest it's time to try to do some something to streamline it, to make it more efficient, more effective. And yes, it's a provincial jurisdiction, but there's got to be a national uh, conversation about this and some federal guidance on this stuff. I got input on all of it. I still don't have uh, coverage from Newfoundland Labrador Prescription Drug Program for my insulin. I'm the lady was on CBC. Uh, what I enter for the federal program, uh, the amount of things, like the, the tax credit, like it's unreal. You can claim up to 6000 or get 6000 back or whatnot. That's a bunch of hogwash. Like my ostomy supporters, so much of my equation that the federal program won't even include on my application for the tax program. Oh, Patty, I could go on for ages, but you've got a lot of callers that got a lot more to say, and I'd like to hear from them too. Appreciate your time, Rhonda. Thank you. Thank you, and have a great day. Merry Christmas, and God bless everybody on your crew and in your listening world. Merry Christmas to you and yours as well. Thank you. Okay, you're Goodbye. welcome, Rhonda. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to four. John, you're on the air. Hello? Hello. Hello, Patty. Good morning. Morning to you. First time caller. I uh, just want to make a, a brief uh, statement about the 811. Uh, first thing got me now because uh, I've experienced it there about two weeks ago. Uh, I had a little accident in the backyard. I broke off a tooth and I tried to get a dentist for that day and I couldn't get a dentist for at least four days. And uh, so she told me to call 811 if I'm in that much pain, which I was in severe pain because. I normally take a Toradol for, for that type of pain, and, and, and it helps me quite a bit. So she called me to call 811. I spent 45 minutes on hold, and finally she got back to me. The lady got back to me, took all my information, and told me to call my family doctor. I said, like, this is why I'm calling you guys. I said, because, like, I can't get through none my family doctors. I can't get through to a dentist. Like, this would have been the first alternative to begin with. So as a better part of the day went by, uh, it was a good four hours, I would think. And finally, someone got back to me, and she said, you could expect a call within seven days. And I said, seven days? I said, like, Christ almighty. I said, uh, like, I'm in severe pain. I said, like, I just need a medication to tie me over for three days. I said, that's all I'm looking for. And I said, oh, more than that, I said, you won't hear from me again. I said, my family doctor will see to me by Monday, and I'm coming. And she said, well, there's not much we can do. She said, you can go to the clinic, I think Blackmarsh Road, am I? Or I, I don't know where the clinic is, but no, I said, I'm not going to go down that road. And she said, you might not get in. So I said, like, is there anything you can do? She said, well, wait for a call from the nurse practitioner within three to seven days. And I said, why, Christ? I said, that's a long time, I said, to be in pain. I said, like, this could be rectified in, like, five minutes. And Patty, I had to end up go to the hospital and get exactly what I was looking for to begin with. And it took 15 minutes to get that done. And I'm saying, like, why is all this money being thrown out? We're nine months into this now with 
beating around the bush looking for physicians and this and that and so on. And I said, and this is the answer I get. So this is a seventy-five or eighty-dollar call, and I didn't get an answer, and I didn't get anything, and I still got it at the hospital. That didn't make no sense to me. Mm-hmm. So this basically my only thing that I just wanted to bring to your attention, because I hear everybody else talk about the same thing. So I've experienced the eight one one as well. I think it's absolutely garbage. That's my opinion. Uh, fair enough. It seems to be a pretty uh, common theme here this morning. I've never had to use it, so I can't chime in with any personal experience. What an emailer did point out, which I think is fair ball, is that 811 is to look for guidance. It's not for emergencies. If you have an emergency, like the lady just a moment ago referenced to a, a severe diabetic episode or a heart-related matter or you gave your head a serious knock, if it's something that is looks like and feels like an emergency, then call 911. If you need that type of immediate treatment, as opposed to eight one one, even though we know we have some issues with red alerts and the uh, availability of ambulances for a variety of reasons as well, but anyone else wants to chime in, they know what to do. John, I appreciate you making time as a first time caller this morning. Thank you, Patty, for taking my call. You have very Christmas. Same to you, John. All the best. Bye bye now. All right, bye bye. Also had uh, got a note here this morning, or based on a call that happened yesterday where I think the caller made a very quick reference to the fact that uh, Channel's warm line is shut down. It's not. Back in April of this year, Channel came, I guess we'll call it a rebrand. They came out, and they're now known as LifeWise. They are not closed. They are open. The warm line services uh, are all still available, just under the different name, which is LifeWise. There's Santa Claus at the window. That got me pretty good. So please don't think that that one particular option for mental health concerns, has gone by the wayside. So the channel warm line is now simply the LifeLies warm line. So you can always contact them. They're still there doing the great work they've always done. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number one. Margie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. It's my first time calling, so I'm a little bit nervous. Take your time. Go right ahead. I'm just calling uh, on the health care, and, uh, you know, everybody's concerned about it. And uh, I have a daughter. She's 26. She has uh, two autoimmune diseases. And back eight years ago, went through four rounds of chemo, rituximab, to put her in remission. And at that time, you know, I, I was very grateful and very happy with the health care system. She got the help that she needed and, uh, you know, was in remission ever since, which, uh, again, as any parent, you're, you're just grateful for that. Uh, she went to see her boyfriend in England a few weeks ago. It was only supposed to be for two weeks and ended up uh, catching COVID, which was my fear ever since the first time I heard it. I was afraid that she was going to catch it. She ended up in the hospital and had not booked any travel insurance. And like any parent, I was, oh, my God, what are we in for now? But my main care was, you know, what what's going to happen? Is this COVID going to be something that takes her out of remission? You know, what, what, what will it do? I know it knocked me off my legs for a while. And uh, <clears throat> she ended up having to have uh, several tests done. They were afraid that she had blood clots developing. Um, she uh, got some, I don't even know the medications. There was blood thinner. She had to get a needle in her belly for 
blood thinners. Apparently, that's how it works best or whatever. Uh, what was amazing, only a couple hours, she went in to emerge, and she was seen to. She was admitted. She was she was getting everything she needed. And, you know, I was really happy about that. Uh, she had her ticket booked to come home. And, you know, we were worried what kind of fees are we going to face. So, you know, what, 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 what are we going to look at? <clears throat> Uh, today she was supposed to come home. That night she got sick, was admitted again with pneumonia. And she's, uh, she's coming home Thursday. She uh, was on two antibiotics. Uh, her potassium levels were low. You know, I was very scared, very worried. And she's coming home. She said there's no bill. Everything, the, the second time she was admitted or, or, or brought into the hospital, they kept her in emergency so that she wouldn't have, if she was put on a ward, she would have had a bill. The first time she was admitted, it was due to COVID, and apparently over there, if you're admitted, even from a foreign country, if it's due to COVID, you're not billed. What surprised me was how quickly they brought her in, how quickly she was seen to. Uh, last fall, uh, due to rituximab, she has no T cells. I'm, I'm not really up on all this, but um, it's impacted her ability, her immune system to fight things off. And many times we've called, you know, do we go over and face eight, ten hours in the emergency ward with her? Um, you know, we'll call 811 hoping maybe they can say, okay, uh, we'll phone in an antibiotic for her. And, of course, no, that didn't happen. They told us to go to a walk-in clinic with her. We went to the walk-in clinic. She was there waiting eight hours. She got through the walk-in clinic. They said she had to go to the hospital to get x-rays on her chest. You know, it, it just it, it feels like within the last eight years, we've seen such a decline in our health care system. And my daughter is older, but I can only imagine what I would have felt had she been you know, back in grade three when she got sick the first time. <clears throat> I just really sympathize with anyone with children that that got to go through this. It's hard going over to the hospital, waiting these long wait times, and, and you're, you're worried sick. And, you know, I, I just wonder, is this something, and I, uh, is this a way for our government to try and force us into a paid healthcare system like the states, you know, uh, and I hate to say that, it seems too too silly to say, but I, I just wonder to see such a decline and know that you can go to a foreign country and be seen in, in three hours and, and start getting healthcare you need right away. Well, I don't know what to say about the uh, question that it might lead to or influence or encourage more private offerings. But that would be a coordinated effort amongst the provinces, which has never really been the case, you know, because you have conservative premiers, NDP premiers, liberal premiers, all experiencing very similar issues in their province. So, you know, the thought is that this may lead to more discussion regarding private health care. There's, there's already private health care in the country. You know, some provinces do more of it than others. But there is a potential pitfall with it. I mean, just think about it. 
if you have a private clinic that's you know for profit that's what they do they don't bill mcp you pay them directly and or your insurance company pays them directly they would have the ability to really poach or recruit a lot of doctors to come into that setting because they'd have a lot more control of their lives. Secondly, the thought is that if a private clinic, a patient presents that has very complex needs, very complicated medical issues, the, pa- the doctor won't have to take you. They're a private business. They can do what they see fit. They can take you or not. Consequently, those clinics may have all the very fundamental, more treatable issues and ailments they deal with, and the public system would be overrun by people with the most complicated issues. That's one point that people make that I think makes a lot of sense. So we have to be cautious when we talk about any further expansion of private health care offerings. There's a difference in having, say, for instance, a private MRI clinic. You know, I don't see huge pitfalls there. But for general treatments and general appointments uh, for GPs or specialists, I think we should be pretty cautious on that stuff. I got no problem if some big muckety muck wants to get out of the queue for an MRI, go down to a clinic on Elizabeth Avenue, get their MRI. That that's fine by me. But there's other things I think we should proceed with caution when we talk about privatization. Yeah, I I don't personally agree with privatization, but I I certainly am concerned about the state of the healthcare system and where it's going. I work in retail. We have a nurse that works with us right now. And I, I said to her, you know, she came home and initially she checked into it and she said she would have to be willing to work 24-hour sh- uh, shifts and stuff. So she decided to go work, work in retail rather than go through that. And, and you know, if, if that's the case, I, I can certainly understand people not wanting to be involved in, in stuff like that. you you got to have a life. you You've got to have a healthy balance or you're going to need health care yourself. I appreciate the time and the thought this morning, Margie. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, final break for the morning. Uh, don't go away. When we come back, David's there to say that the system is overloaded. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. David, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. And this topic is one of the best ones I think I heard on your show, i got to say, because you know what? The system... You said it just prior to the break, sir. Overloaded. So, listen, you don't have to be a rocket star or any other kind of star to know and see where the problems come from. I, myself, I, myself, I mean, I'm a prime candidate. I mean, thank the good Lord, and I thank the good Lord every day that I'm still in remission. I'm still okay with uh, following all what I had done there in St. John's and one place in particular at the Elf Center, uh, Eastern Elf Center. I'm going to tell you, buddy, the people that are working in that in that system in there, inside of those, even from the parking all the way to the back of the house and, and front again, they're so overloaded that they can't even say hello, yet they were still work with a smile on their face. And so you you say everybody knows what the cause of it is. What do you suggest the cause is? Well, it's time for the government to open their eyes and see what's going on here. Uh, you know, the last lady that was speaking about her poor little daughter that was over there in England, and, and, and she couldn't believe how fast that the, the little girl was in there and had someone look at her, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, this this used to be like this here, here in Newfoundland also in all... Uh, uh, I mean, you didn't have to wait 15 or 16 months to get a sheet of paper signed. Right. So what do you think is causing it? That's all. I'm uh, just curious as to your perspective on that. Well, I, 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 I for one, is going to, bl- going to blame it on the pandemic. And pandemic, unfortunately, is a word that 
I don't know, it came to us uh, since early 2020, and it's still into our brain. And this is where all the systems went wrong. Now, how are we going to fix it? Well, I'm not that big an expert, sir. <laughs> yeah, no, neither am I. Um, I think the pandemic may have uh, contributed uh, somewhat, considering the fact that there was a lot of people left on wait lists, especially for some surgeries. They were preparing for hospitals to be overwhelmed, which never thankfully happened in this province. So we did see that happen. That's absolutely true. But what I also think it did it shone a very bright light on the healthcare system. More and more people thought about it, talked about it, listened to other people's stories about it, because this didn't happen overnight. I mean, I think if we look back over, the, say, the course of 10 years, these issues and trajectories were happening. So I think the pandemic, more than anything else, really brought a keen focus of the healthcare system and exactly what was going on. And so people now think about it and talk about it more than just from my own personal experience. We didn't detalk healthcare prior to the pandemic, but not like this. And nor did people well, talk about wait lists like this and dying while waiting for a cardiac procedure or those types of things. So I think that's really what's changed over the last two and a half, three years. My goodness gracious Lord, I'd like to have two weeks to talk to you nonstop. Just take a break in between because I'm going to tell you, I'm sure I'm not the only one, sir, that agrees with what you just said. Because, I mean, I myself can tell you that uh, I haven't left the house for nine weeks, nine weeks nonstop to go get treatment and stuff like that. And being like uh, 10 and 10 and 12 hours away from it. Uh, let me tell you, uh, my story is long and is big. And I'm sure most people don't want to hear talk of it. Because uh, most people, would, just a regular person, would not believe would not believe it anyway, and uh, if he had any sense, that is. And but our but our system, I mean, them uh, them, them poor buildings, uh, would it be in the healthcare? Would it be into the teaching? Would it be in uh, even the municipal affairs? It's all the same. The pandemic went down, but you're right. Uh, Twenty years ago, when all this air started. It should have been looked at then. Uh, what are we going to do about it today? Like I told you, I'm not, you know, I wish I was expert enough to, 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 to say that I myself, anyway, I put my faith in the Lord. And that, and, and I'll tell you, uh, good luck to anybody that falls sick, sir. David, and of course, you can keep your own private information to yourself, but just so we understand your personal concerns here. Tell us some of your story, even if it might be unbelievable to some of the listeners, so we have a better understanding of where you're coming from. Well, I, I can think of one. I can think of one because uh, the, 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 the sitting in the office on a chair looking at a stranger uh, that, uh, that that's looking at you straight in the eyes and telling you you got cancer. And this was, uh, I mean, that was devastating enough. I, I nearly lifted off the chair. Uh, uh, I had I myself had a biopsy done uh, in December of uh, early December of 2019, and I never got my news uh, telling me that I had cancer before the last of February, sir. Should I say any more? No, that's fine. You share it exactly as you see fit, David. Well, that's the problem, sir. The systems are overloaded. I mean, you yourself, sir. You're a great DJ, and you're doing a <laughs> job on this on on this uh, on this VOCM the talk show and stuff like that. But listen, if the papers are not sent to you as soon as the question is that, how can you answer it? Fair ball. Understood. Point taken, and I'm glad you made time for the show. Would you like to ask? Or, sorry, pardon me. Add anything else before we say goodbye this morning, David? 
I want to wish each and every listener and all of the world uh, Merry Christmas. And don't forget, Jesus was born on Christmas Day. Appreciate the time. Stay in touch. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to three. Tony, you're on the air. Good morning, Teddy. Morning to you. I just listened down. I was going, listen to the, <clears throat> the just eight one one thing. I mean, I don't have a family doctor anymore myself, so if you call for a prescription, I phoned the other day, and you got to wait, get a wait now a week just to come back, just for them to call you back to get a prescription filled. So we're paying up to seventy two thousand hours for the first, probably for the first year. You collect eighty two dollars an hour. So after that, no, it's a, no, it's eighty two dollars per call. Call volume yeah. expected at seventy two thousand calls per year, not hours. No, I'm sorry, but anyway. According to what Tom Osborne was saying, they're getting now up to close to 600 calls a day. So in four months, your 72,000 hours is up. So anything after that, you're getting paid anywhere from 58 to $68 an hour, or a call. It's less than but that, but yeah, for, fair enough. The cost does go yeah. down per call. So basically, after, after four, for the next eight months, you're going to get an extra, basically, they're going to get an extra 58 to $68 an hour because their 72,000 hours are up. So, I mean, to me, that's on top of the money that they've already collected. And so, to me, for the next eight months, it's only averaging about $140, $150 an hour because they kept back the first year in four months. So, meanwhile, we can't pay a doctor to keep them here. And like I mentioned before, I mean, and during COVID, Haggy came out and said they, were, they hired a company in the United States, paid them $35 million. I don't know if you can recall it or not. That's the software issue, yep. And uh, for the, the cut, to bring in a company to cut $80 million out of health care. So we know if we're cut right now because the doctors, I mean, there was a Dr. Bagheri in, in, uh, up in Trapassi. He retired, so there's another lady doctor there. She was on there a few months ago. She had a piece out. And uh, they offered her... Uh, basically, uh, she said she'd never been so devalued in all of her life. And they wanted her to drive from Trapassi to uh, Holyrood two days a week, and then they wanted to drive her from Trapassi to St. Mary's. So on her own dime. And she only asked for her, for the, and she said they love what I'll offer her, and they were, she only she asked for for the first year of $7,500 just for carpool allowance. And they told her either take what they offer or leave it. So this is what they're doing to doctors, just force them out of here. And $37 a visit. And, and make the best of it. You're, you're phoning these call centers, and they're recommending you to go see a doctor. So we're paying triple or quadruple for for somebody to tell us to go what we need to, where we need to go to, but we don't have the doctor to go to it. And they're insulting the doctors and to force them out of here because, I mean, their last year they went in and they were talking to the doctors, and, and with 70 doctors went in and Haggy and his, and his group went in, and they never even made them an offer, and they weren't even allowed to ask any questions. And then they allowed Nova Scotia and New Brunswick to come down and make them all kinds of offers. As we discussed at our last call, there was one doctor there working in PEI that never even made her an offer. So they're basically forcing the doctors out of here. And I think, I was, uh, I think they're trying to privatize everything because right now, I mean, I don't, if we had the health care and everything else to go with it, I mean, I could see it. Uh, privatizing, uh, if you had a private thing here, if you, want, if you wanted to go and you wanted to get certain things done, yes, go for it. But we got to have it there for the people that can't afford it and the people that it's their decision if they got the money to do it. That's how I look at this. I mean, for to pay a call center triple and, and more than triple than what you're paying a doctor for to try to solve a problem or to go see a doctor you don't have, I mean, that's an insult to the people. And, they're, 
And basically, they're treating the people like they're so stupid. I mean, it's like, it's unbelievable what's going on here. I mean, I was watching there, it was about four weeks, seven weeks ago, seven, eight weeks ago, it was Dr. Ryan TV News. He was an allergy specialist in Janeway. He turned around and him and his buddy, him and his partner was going to open up uh, for adults as well. And the government would not give them the space to treat adults allergy and their allergy specialists. They wouldn't give them the space uh, for, they said they never had a space to offer them in, for treating adults. So he resigned. And this is what we're doing. And then for to come out with this announcement and say that the doctors, well, you're only getting $37 a, a visit. But we're going to get a call. We're going to give 82 plus. So, I mean, it's just as everything is just gone. And the government is just forcing doctors out of here. And it's just, they could have signed them. But they don't. And the same thing with our therapists. I mean, you've got respiratory therapists who was six left in September. And they got nine there and never even talked to but signed them. And yet they let other problems come in and sign them or, or offer them. So, I mean, it's just, it goes to show what it is. And, and I think we should be protesting against this uh, party because right now they're doing everything they can. I mean, you've got hundreds plus thousands of people waiting for a doc, family doctor. You got If you got tests done, like I had to get a test done, supposed to get it done last week, but I couldn't get it done because I waited two years to get it. And when I got it, I didn't have no family doctor to send it to. So if you got no family doctor to send it to, you got to have somebody to send it to. I don't have it anymore because he had to retire due to illnesses. And okay. I went to another doctor, and she left the country because, or she left here in Newfoundland after having a clinic, like I said before, and went to Toronto because her husband was from another country and couldn't get a job here. And he was okay. a doctor. But anyway, I'll let you go, and you have a great weekend. You too, Tony. All the best. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, we're over time, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.